So, uh, Ori, tell I was wondering, are you into like sports, uh, football, or anything like that? Oh no, Jamie, but have you noticed it's awfully quiet around here? You know what? It really is. I haven't seen Tom or previous for a little while. Where are they? My brothers, I heard them in a room upstairs. There's lots of cheering and shouting and crying. I don't know what's happening. Something to do with euros or whatever currency the kids are using these days. Oh, rewinders. Never mind. And find out what happens this week on Yusa Chronicles. Hello, everybody. And welcome to Yusa Chronicles. Today, we're supposed to the man who was a formerly owner of Chris Tribute Act, a radio presenter, a football commentator, and an all-out musician. These are the chronicles of Ian Dantra. I do love Santa Bar Choir. Welcome, everybody, to the 35th edition of Useless Chronicles, the chronicles of Ian Danta. I am, as always, Mr. Sleeky and Sleep Jamie, and with me is this handsome man. The fucking tiredest Scotsman in the world, Tom. Hi, guys. Welcome to Chronicles. Fuck it. Let's go. Right. Tea on. Caffeine done. Let's just fucking record this show. For fucks. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, massive apologies. This show is out uh, a day late. Just because um, Jamie's got really wank shifts. I've got really wank shifts. And Scotland played in the Euros last night and it ruined our normal recording evening. So technically, it's actually my fault. So what I want to say to everybody out there is I want to thank my mum and thank my dad. No, I'm joking. Um, basically, it was just not worth it at all, boys. Not worth watching I, at all. I was going to say in hindsight, but you wish you'd just recorded instead. <laughs> No, actually, in hindsight, I don't. In hindsight, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad that we scored our only goal of the tournament. Um, but I'm happy, you know, I absolutely brought Elliot's house down to its pure foundations when that goal went in. <laughs> I, I love, I'm, I'm, but the, thing, the beautiful thing is, obviously, at Elliot's house is we have, that he turns the volume up to like 80 and his TV is huge. Really? And it's, oh my God, it's like you're there. It's amazing. <laughs> And um, yeah, so add that. So the, the volume on 80, add the turn that up, you know, add that with me, how loud I am anyway. And I scream, I literally screamed the place down. Like I lost my shit. It was amazing when we scored. Did you do that football fan thing of like lifting your shirt over your head and running around in a circle? Around? No one does that anymore, Jay Mate. Don't be so 1990s. Is that the most like... 90s reference I could ever make? <laughs> no one does that anymore. Um, well, I don't bloody know. You actually, you, well, you get booked now for taking your shirt off. So really? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so when Callum McGregor hit that volley and it flew straight to that bottom corner, I just was like, I, I don't I don't think I remember what happened in that like, 10 to 15 seconds. <laughs> I remember just losing my fucking mind. <laughs> it's all a blur. I don't know what Elliot did. He probably just sat there and laughed to himself. I'm not really sure what he did. He's probably saying, like, I invited this guy around my house. Um... So he, he does it with England and Chelsea, so... Um, Fair enough. Yeah, it was just it was just crazy. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Gutted that we we're out, um, to be honest. But we got. I didn't expect to get any further than we did. I just enjoyed the fact that we were there. I did say that a couple of weeks ago. You did. I, I was just happy that we were there. Um, you know, it would have been nice. All we had to do was win, and we would we would have been through. But it was not to be, not to be at all. So do you know? What? It's a little bit bittersweet as well. Though I just realised. 
What's that? In today's interview, you speak to the guest about Scotland in the Euros. Yeah, I do. And we release it on the episode that they went out. I feel a little bit sad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely fine. It's just one of those things. We'll just have to do it for the World Cup next year. Very good point. Because obviously, it was meant to be over two years, but obviously the Euros were delayed by a year. So for the people that don't watch any football slash soccer, so... That's um, the fact that I don't care one eye about football, but before every Scotland game, I texted you to wish you good luck. Yeah, I know. I love you so much. I fucking <laughs> love you. You're absolute fucking hero. Um, anyway, man, how's things? How you been? You okay? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I was very tired yesterday because, you know, I'm back on tonight this week. So Jamie did his usual thing of, I will wake up early in the morning and then stay awake for like 26 hours before oh, I go back to bed. Absolute melon. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. It's all good. How how things been? What have you been up to? That's been good. Um trying to think i'm not really done a lot workity work 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 as rihanna once said um she said workity work work did she She did yeah she did (laughs) (laughs) Um, that good answer workity work 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 work. yeah and i really want rihanna to redo that song (laughs) i mean she won't but i know we can all dream we can can all dream I i could tweet her and ask but uh, yeah, we've been busy boys. We've uh, recorded two interviews since we last spoke. Um, I was a guest on George Lugo's podcast, which came out the other day as well, which was very fun and beautiful to do. Yeah, Life Stories of George Lugo. You can find it on YouTube. And yeah, it was, it was really good. I, after it finished, I went, wow, that was really depressing. I felt really quite guilty. That's the whole point of it, you sausage. I know, but it's more, every question he asked me was like, Focused on a shit part of my life, <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, people can listen to that and think he's a right miserable content." Though. No, people can listen to it and be like, "Fucking, our guy went through some shit back then," you know, because that's the whole point. You can't lie about your life, can you? No, no, I'll, t- I'll tell what the truth. What did you do when you were fifteen? Uh, I went to the moon. Um, <laughs> you know, I ate cheese up there. It was delicious. Uh, did, that for a, did that for a few months. Came back, moved to China, and uh, yeah, tickled a pig. <laughs> So you know, I want to tickle a pig now. I don't want to go to the moon or go to China. I want to tickle a pig. Shall we move on swiftly? Watching wise, I'm just playing through Sons of Anarchy. I'm in the last season. Ooh. It's getting intense. I don't want it to end. Um, we started a new program called Sweet Tooth that's on Netflix. Me and the wife did. Watched a couple of episodes, pretty good so far. I can't really say a lot because not a lot's happened. It's only two episodes, but it's been good. Um, I haven't watched any movies or anything. No. I'll tell you what I did do the other day because, you know, I was bored. I decided to go and tidy my loft, as you do, you know. I was going through my Kiss collection because, as you know, I'm a big Kiss fan. I found something in there and I was like, I wonder how much this is worth. It's They released a box set years ago and okay. it's in my guitar case. Yeah. And it's still sealed. But well, it's been open to look at, but all the CDs and everything are sealed. So I had a quick look. 250 quid that's worth. Okay. I was like, should I sell it? No. No. It can stay. It can stay here. I was fully expecting it to be like four, four, five figures. And when you oh. said 250 quid, I was a bit like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was, didn't expect it to be worth that much. I was quite surprised. That's that's cool. So you're wearing a kiss t-shirt right now? Yeah, it's my Baymax kiss t-shirt. Love this t-shirt. What the hell's Baymax? Oh, <gasps> From Big Hero 6. What's uh, Big Hero 6? It's a Disney movie, Tom. What's Disney? It's a company that makes lots of animated movies. Sorry. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> <Mwah>. um, 
I just want to see what you're gonna do. That's why I thought I won't say anything. I'll just stare at you. <laughs> I know not anyone can see that, but I just thought it'd be funny to, to do so. Uh, other than that, I went to see the kids yesterday, and that's about it, really. Well, how was that? It was beautiful. It was very beautiful. What about you? What have you been up to? Uh, I'm well, thank you for asking. Um, I thought I said that know, at the beginning. I'm quite. I'm fucking. I did. I'm so tired. Like uh, just, I don't know why. I haven't. Re- I, I mean, actually, I can answer that. I've been reannering so much. Like I worked the entire weekend. Um, I've been watching the Euros, of course. Um, I watched the Wales game on Sunday when they went through. That was cool. Uh, like Cardiff's been buzzing, absolutely buzzing with the football. It's been really nice to see. Um, my friend Polly came over Sunday night. We hung out. Just chatted. It was really nice. Played chess. I beat her. She didn't like it. <laughs> um, Is that what the kids do these days? <laughs> I guess so. She loves chess. And I was like, I've played chess in fucking years. Um, and I don't even know how to play chess. She started kicking. I was like, I started strong. She started absolutely destroying me. I was like, fuck. And then I was really cheeky. I managed to beat her. I don't know how. Anyway. Um what else have I been doing? Yesterday, my day off, I did absolutely nothing, and it was oh, amazing. They're the best like, days off. And then I went to Elliot's to watch the football last night, to watch the Scotland game, watch us get knocked out by Croatia. Um, and then I went to the pub Friday night with Elliot, Oscar, and Des. Elliot's house went to watch England-Scotland. So that was a good game. The only Scotland fan in the entire pub. It was full of England fans. <laughs> and obviously, there are Welsh people there as well. And like... It was so funny because at the start of the game, it was all like they were singing the national anthem. They were going, nuts. England fans going mental, loving it. They hit the post in like the first two, three minutes. And I was going, fuck, here we go. Um, and as the game went on, and the game went on, the England fans got quieter and quieter. And I was just like, this is wonderful. So randomly, about the 60th odd minute, I out of nowhere just went, God's going. Like I shouted really fucking loudly, <laughs> and the whole pub just went dead silent. <laughs> for like five minutes it was just absolutely dead like just dead silence and I was just like this is amazing I was going to say this is going to be one of those other that felt incredible or I felt like a tip moment no I was just so happy because I just silenced the entire pub so um, yeah I loved it absolutely loved it that was cool um, obviously we drew nil nil um, what else have I been doing other than work, like not really hard. I'm meant to be going to Cheltenham this weekend for Jasper's uh, birthday, which I'm quite looking forward to. Uh, it's like it's like Jasper's birthday and Helen Jasper's anniversary. And that, that was that was yesterday, but they're like celebrating all this weekend. So uh, endeavouring to get to Cheltenham on the weekend. I'm re- I've got the weekend off. I'm quite looking forward to it. I'm not going to lie. Um, but yeah, man. Other than that, like I watched a couple of episodes of Shield Shield yesterday. Um, catching up WWE, but I'm three months behind now. Like I'm really starting to struggle. Like I'm just not enjoying it. Um, it's just not what it used to be anymore. It's not. Uh, I don't know if it's just the sign of the times or this whole pandemic. There's no crowd, sort of thing. But yeah. But one thing I did see, and I'm absolutely enraged and gobsmacked about. And if anyone's a wrestling fan, they'll understand. If you're not, I'm really sorry. But give me this minute. Why have they released Braun Strowman? Uh, I don't know. Because that's the most mind-blowing piece of shit I've ever seen in my life. There is rumoured reasons that I read, but I don't know what the reasons are. What are the rumoured reasons? Because his contract was a ridiculous amount of money. So because they're trying to cut costs, they went, ah, he's a lot of money. We're not really doing anything with him. Bye-bye. 
Yeah, Disgusting. I don't get it. I don't get it. They have fired so many people. It's, I just, yeah, I'm st- the, 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 my love for it is really declining massively. Like, same. It's like even reading the results, I'm getting a bit bored because like, I don't watch it anymore because I don't have time. But I read the results and I'm like, wow, this does not look like a good show on paper either. Yeah, and again, A&E, AEW doesn't really appeal to me either. I read the results of that. I'm like, that didn't really sound much fun either. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not all that anymore, is it? I'll tell you what is cool, though. I noticed that fuckloads of bands have started announcing gigs. Yes. Yeah, because of the download pilot, which obviously went really well. Um, for those people that got to go, it's really fucking cool. Um, but yeah, I noticed a lot of bands have started announcing those shows for the end of the year, start of next year now, which is really exciting. Yeah, Fozzie have announced the tour, so I'm like, I need to go. Yeah, not come to Cardiff though. The fuck? And they're not coming to Cardiff. I can't. I just, I just. They're going to Swansea. Like, I just look for Birmingham and then skip. I don't know. <laughs> I got a fucking Swansea. I'm like, oh, cool. Yeah. Why do you go to Swansea, not Cardiff? I don't know. Well, you're, yeah, let's just go to a little tiny, you know, town city rather than I don't know. Yeah, Swansea is a city, isn't it? Never mind. Yeah. Ignore me. Um, you know, rather than the capital, we'll go to Swansea instead. Um, I suppose sort of life out, Jericho. <laughs> uh, but other than that, man, not a whole hell of a lot's going on, to be fair. Um, I thought it was something I wanted to talk to you about, but I, I literally feel like I can't remember now. I wish I'd written it down. Oh, yes. Wow, that was right. like fucking turning emotions. That was good. It was, wasn't it? I just remembered. <laughs> Is there anything, right? Is there anything more frustrating in the entire world, in the history of ever, than thinking, oh my God, when I get in, I'm going to have a beautiful cup of tea. It's going to be absolutely spot on. I'm so excited for it. It's ridiculous. Kettle on. Bag in, sugar in. Let's wait for the kettle. It boils. You pour the water in like, oh, this is going to be absolutely wonderful. You open the fridge. Oh, fuck. I haven't got any milk. God fucking damn it. (laughs) Yeah. It happens to me all the time at work. I'd just been in Sainsbury's as well earlier, getting some dins. And I thought... I didn't, it didn't even click that I'd finished my milk this morning. I'm, dude, I'm livid. Absolutely livid. You were drinking just... a beverage. Did you nick someone? Did you nick a housemate's milk? Did you break the rules? No. Of course oh. I fucking didn't. Is that Tuesday's milk? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a post-it note on it. That meant that was one of my favourite. <laughs> one of my favourite things ever about the interview last week. I don't listen back to our interviews very often. But I listen back to that one. I was in tears. <laughs> oh, that was so good. Sorry, I was on a last tangent, but maybe then, then it's the show, so it's fine. Um, I was going to say, this way your housemate just tomorrow afternoon barge through and go, I just heard what you said in your fucking podcast. That was my milk, wasn't it, you prick? Um, but in awesome news, the house is finally going to be full from Friday. Every Ooh. room is going to be it's going to be taken. For so, how long? <laughs> well, yeah, well, till August, September time. But, right. Yeah, I'm well happy with that. So, yeah, we've got another, another lady moving in, so it should be good. Like, mix it up a little bit in the, in the house. Beautiful. In the faux shizzle, I believe. In the faux shizzle. In the faux shiz. <laughs> faux shizzle, my nizzle. Absolutely. Well, uh, before we move on, shall we uh, take a word from our sponsors? Absolutely. Oh, my brothers, have you seen this beautiful website? Yes, Rewind, I have. We want, we'd like to thank our friends, uh, The Web Orchard and Pete White, for this illustrious new website they have created us. Wait, wait, there's a website? 
Yes, there is previous. www.yousuckernetwork.com. It's incredible. So we want to say a massive thank you to The Web Orchard. So go find them, The Web Orchard, on all social medias, or just head to www.theweborchard.com for all your website needs. Oh, my brothers. It's beautiful. Let's get back to this week's episode. I guess it's that time to be taught some various things. Welcome to Callum's Treachings. Callum is treaching us some glorious things this week. Uh, shall we find out what they are, Jamie? Yes, let's, let's educate ourselves. Let's get started, shall we? So it's a bit mad that the alphabet is in the order it is because it doesn't have to be in any order. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, he's not wrong. Z S V Q Y X N. <laughs> and what's funny is as well, it's that same order in every language. Is it? Yeah. Well, I know yeah. I know my French alphabet, and that's in the same order, so I assume it is in other countries as well. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah, the French one's easy to know because it's basically the English one with an accent on it. <laughs> What's the Canadian one? A B C D E F G H I J K L M N O B A D Y. Q R S T U Fred. W X Y M. If it's not, it should be. But that's a really good point. Why is it in that order? I I don't know, but I love the fact that you like, literally now I just want to start fucking with people and you know start when we start. If I ever have kids, that's like now we're gonna learn the alphabet. B G T S V X Y. I love how you still stick to the rhyming pattern in the song. L A B C <laughs> Z O Q. <laughs> I need to know now. I'm gonna have to look this up afterwards. I need to know why it's in that order, man. That is phenomenal. I'd I'd love to know. Actually, it's quite intriguing. So, oh, thank you, Cal. What Callum, else? I love your brain. <laughs> what else is Callum treating us this week? In the film Jurassic Park, there's a scene where the T Rex is chasing the main characters in the jeep. They cross my mind that the jeep is likely fueled by petrol or petroleum, which is a fossil fuel, which, as we know, is, you know, made up of um, ancient uh, organisms and things like that that, you know, extracted out of the ground um, from a long time ago. So the um, T-Rex was created from a mosquito bite in it and they've extracted the DNA. So there's a chance that the T-Rex could be chasing itself. <laughs> I don't know what I prefer more out of that. What he said, his long ass explanation of what fossils were. <laughs> <laughs> so it's essentially chasing the Jeep that's run by itself. Is what yeah. yeah, which is insane. I get where he's coming from, yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely crazy. It's amazing how he comes up with stuff like this because it's like I never, you never think, did you? Would you? No. That's because a really good point. The stupid part of my brain started thinking, but Jurassic Park set in the future because they created the dinosaurs, so they couldn't have had petrol back then. But then obviously it's not set in Jurassic times, is it? No, it's a part. Yeah. So I, I, my brain, I started going, oh my, and then I went, oh no, no don't say that out loud. Don't say that. 
let's just crack on with the show. It's all. But good. he's right there because the dinosaurs are re- replicated using mosquitoes, not actual dinosaurs. So the mosquito could have bit that dinosaur. They use that mosquito to make T Rex, and the T Rex's fossil could be used to make the petrol. So yeah, it could be chasing itself. That's fucking brilliant. It is brilliant. Like, that just... is absolutely magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, have you heard the rumours they want to do a Jurassic World Fast and the Furious crossover movie? Oh, why? I don't know, but if it involves Vin Diesel being eaten by a T-Rex, I'm down. Why? I'm saying that, is Vin Diesel even in them films anymore? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't care. No. I, I, I I've, just... I've seen one Fast and the Furious movie, so I don't know. I've seen none, and I intend to keep it that way. <laughs> I only watched Hobbs and Shaw because I know it wasn't part of the main Fast and the Furious storyline. So, when they start fucking pulling submarines and like, the rocks pulling helicopters out of the air, I think I'm good. I heard they're going to space in the new ones. Like, oh, fuck knows what's going on? Fuck me! How are they still making movies? I don't know. What's the car going to drive on? <laughs> no idea. Fucking Rainbow Road. I'd watch that. No, d- <laughs> no, Jamie. What else is Callum treating us this week? Gummy worms have more bones in them than actual worms because they're made of gelatin. I want to give an answer to this. I think that's just again is not wrong. <laughs> I feel like Callum's treachings are now turning into fun facts you can tell your friends down the pub sessions. <laughs> your dad's there again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Callum, you're an absolute legend of epic proportion. I've never, again, never put that together. Fucking brilliant. Do you know what he's done, Jamie? <laughs> what? We've got a bonus treaching <gasps> this week. Bono oh. treacho? Bono treacho. You ready? <laughs> Go on, then. Beer in a green bottle tastes the worst out of all other bottles of beer. <laughs> what? what? <I> agree. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> I swear, do you know what? Then again, the de- <laughs> The Danes, the Danes use um, green bottles because obviously Heineken, Grolsch, that's in green. Yeah. Why does green taste wor- the worst? I, I, does I, it? Don't, I don't know. I don't know either. What, I don't know what the difference is. I'm working out, I'm trying to work out if this means that he's thinking all the shit flavours of beer come in green bottles or the green bottle itself makes beer taste like shit. I think it means the green bottle itself makes bo- beer taste like shit. Because Bud is lovely. That's in brown. So, yeah. odd. Maybe? Yeah, I guess so. No. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know how to answer this one. Might have to make a little experiment out of it, I suppose. Yes. Let's get some but, empty bottles and just pour beers into them and see if it tastes any different in the different let's bottles. Let's just, just fucking see what happens. Let's go with the flow, yeah? Ah, oh, so. absolutely beautiful. Callum, thank you so much again. We you really, hero, really appreciate sir. it. You absolute fucking legend. gummy worms one has killed me. <laughs> Did you fucking love that, didn't you? That is the best. Okay. Welcome to the fir- 35th edition of Tom's Journal. So, are you ready? As ready as I'm ever. Hey, Jamie, are you ready? Dum, dum. I said, 
Uh, anyway, I can't copyright. So anyway, the, the, <laughs> me and Oscar, but I don't remember a couple of weeks back, me and Oscar went for a walk around Rose Park. Yes. And we were sat at the table waiting for Chris, my other house, we finished work. He works on Rose Park in the little cafe. And we just sat there and this little girl walked over and she was like pointing at me and waving. And I was like, oh yeah. And Oscar had his phone, his fags and his keys on the table. And she walked around, point was pointing. I started to ignore her because I was like, this is a bit weird. She's about three. I don't really want to interact with a little girl anymore. Whatever, well, she's on her own for starters as well. So I just looked away. She walked around, pointing at Oscar's phone and grabbed his phone and was like trying to take it. And he was like, no, it's, it's my phone. But she literally he was like pincers and really would not let go. And he's like, what the hell? Yeah, he's like, that's my phone. Like, he's like, let go, come on. And she was literally like, no, like trying to proper steal it. We're like, love, no, what are you doing? Like, it was really weird. And like, it's weird. He couldn't get it off her. Like, he literally couldn't get it off her. And the dad came running around about 10 minutes later. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Like, what the, why are you letting your, your little kid? Looks like, with, there's a massive body of water here as well. Wow. Like, you're just letting her fuck off and run off and not do anything about it. Like, what the hell? The fuck? Yeah, I know. But yeah, you couldn't get off her. Like, he was really trying and she was ri- like, pits of grip, would not let go. Strongest fingers in the world, that kid. <laughs> um, this guy's imagery threatening the kid. I'll fucking punch you. Let go of my phone, kid. <laughs> um, this made me so happy. This is the stupidest thing ever, but it made me like... It's one of those moments where I was like, I, my day's going to be amazing. I feel good. Um, I walked through an absolute herd of seagulls that were pecking at a bin that was full of food in it. And as I got closer, I threw my arms up in the air. They all flew up and I went, get them, my pretties! <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where this was going then when you are like, I walked into a herd of seagulls. There was, lo- there was loads of them as well. So it made it look even more... Sp- I wish someone could have filmed it from the opposite side because it would have looked absolutely majestic. As I- <laughs> were you on your own? Yes. That makes it even better. <laughs> but down the end of my road, I was just walking down. I was like, get them, my pretties! And they all flew off. I was just like, it was just hilarious. I proper, I loved that moment to myself. I don't care. So I just loved it. That would have been an incredible video. Oh, thank you. I really wish it had been sick, wouldn't it? It should have been amazing. Big fucking selfie stick. Put it, right. It wouldn't have worked. But um, Do you reckon, Jamie, that when we don't have to wear masks anymore, if that happens, that people are going to forget that they don't have to wear them anymore and are going to like mouth fuck off to people without realising? <laughs> That's something I'd do. <laughs> because if I remember rightly now, I'm pretty sure I... Because... Oh, I can't wait if I'm going to tell you this. I was bullied in school for being gormless. Gormless, okay. So like... Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I do that now because I don't have to worry about it. So when I'm at work, I just zone out while you're like, So like, but no one can see this, so it's fine. So I just, yeah, so, but now I'm going to realise that once, if they do take them away, I'll be like... <laughs> <laughs> I suppose probably because you're zoning out, you don't even realise. You're doing it yeah. half the time, so... I do, I, I do the thing as well. People at home, I'm like, fucking hell. Yeah, I do that. I do that a lot. <laughs> Wanker. Yeah, that'd be so funny. My, my worries, I'm so used to wearing them now. Half the time I forget I'm wearing it. The amount of times I've gone to take a swig of a drink and go, nope, there's fabric there, you idiot. Phenomenal. <laughs> Absolutely phenomenal. Not as good as Coffee Guy. Remember Coffee Guy I mentioned on the journal ages ago? 
when he took a massive swig of coffee, not realising Vassar's oh, yeah. went all over him. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I've not actually done that. I've noticed, like, as I'm about to pour, I go, you fucking idiot, take it off. But Just bloody perfection. <laughs> um, You don't like voice notes, do you? I don't mind them. I don't mind receiving them. I just don't like recording them. I feel awkward. So I love them because obviously it's not like, duh, uh, you just talk. But when people send voice notes, as it's easier than typing, and then you realise that you can't read back through what people have said, so you have to remember and deflect while sending them. So I normally get like voice notes that are like minutes long, and I'm like, fuck, what did they say? So I remember <laughs> the start and the end, and I can never remember the middle. I'm like, what the fuck did they say? So I'm like, I was waffling on about shit, but like, yeah, so, you know, my vinyl player's blue, and it's just very blue, the bluest of blue. Um too blue. Maybe it's too blue. Is it sea blue? Anyway. Oh, yes. How is your dad? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose for you can't like pause your recording and you can't just skip where you're playing on a voice note because you have a list of the whole thing or nothing. Yeah, this is funny. Texting is better. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Um, this was weird. I went shopping yesterday. There were three guys having a proper 90s rave in the middle of the street with bucket hats on and serious raving face. They must have been on drugs. It was hilarious. Serious raving face? Yeah, they was like... <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. I'm making a gif out of that. <laughs> yeah, I literally blare... My music was blaring out their phones. It was like... <laughs> Loving it. And they got really awkward when I walked past. It was like... Like they're going to fucking stab me up or something. <laughs> so funny. Best thing I've ever seen. Thank you. Two more. <laughs> I find this hilarious. People that have profile pictures on social media that have their friends in and they always cut their friend's head, half, their face in half. So it's like them and half of their mate's face. Why do people do that? Because <laughs> I look good in this photo. Fuck my friend. That's pretty much what it says. Yeah. And so it's just like... And it's always like the most unflattering part of their friend as well. <laughs> so like... Yeah, it's just makes me laugh. I love that. Uh, and finally, there's a guy in Cardiff City Centre who runs a market stall who sells fruit. Uh, every fucking day, it's strawberries for a pound. Or you can hear, strawberries for a pound. That's all you can hear every day, <laughs> every single day. All right. I reckon, first and foremost, I reckon he falls asleep, right? And does it in his does it in his dreams? He must be in bed being like strawberries, strawberries, pound, strawberries, strawberries, pound, strawberries. I reckon he does that. His wife must fucking hate it. But today there was just the most glorious moment where he was doing it. So strawberries for a pound, and you just heard someone else mocking it. So it's always just like strawberries. <laughs> Strawberry! They just kept doing different voices every time. Voice went, Strawberry! <laughs> it was just very funny. So it literally, he he keep going to Strawberries for a pound! Strawberry! Strawberries! Like, it was just always strawberries for a pound in Cardiff City Centre. How many times a day do you reckon he gets himself one of them people that thinks they're fucking hilarious and walks up to me and goes, Excuse me, mate, how much are the strawberries? Oh. And that was the fifth edition! Of Tom's journal. Yeah, probably fucking all the be- fucking time. Probably. Fucking beautiful. I enjoyed that. I especially enjoyed your uh, dancing face. 
Right, Jamie, the PS2 resistance. Yes, indeed. This was a glorious interview again with a true Kiss fan. So this was that you were in your element. I was going to say I was ever so slightly in my element during this one. But you made me proud because you knew a song that wasn't the two that every fucker knows. So I was quite, I was quite proud of you. Everybody's got a reason to live, baby. <laughs> Don't get me started. Everybody's got a dream and a hunger inside. There you, Fuck, go. you know the words as well. Everybody's got a reason to live, but it can't be your love. Yes. Oh, I'm so proud. <laughs> God, I love you so much. There you go, Jamie. Or just oh. And on that day, Jamie's heart grew 6,000 times. <laughs> and on this day, remember Jamie Westwood. His oh. heart exploded due to orgasm in from Thompson, kiss reason to live. <laughs> But Ian, but, Ian no. thank you so much. We really, really appreciate you doing this. We've loved every single second of it. It was so funny. Um, and just a real genuine pleasure to talk to you. You're just Absolutely a- amazing. I love the fact this was a complete accidental find as well, I, which makes me love this so much more. Like, I was looking for someone that played in a tribute band. That was it. I wanted to talk to someone that played in tribute bands. And then, oh, he used, he's from my neck of the woods. Oh, he's also a radio DJ and has been for many years. Oh, he's released two solo albums. Oh, he's done this. He's done this. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm emailing this guy immediately. Just incredible. It was awesome. Great find. Great find. I think we should uh, allow him into the chateau. I think we should. JB, any final words? No, just again, as I always say, Ian, thank you so damn much. Just absolute blast. So much fun talking to you. And when the YouTube video version of this comes out, just look at that painting behind him. Oh, I need it in my life. I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> so, but you would be a massive Kiss fan. Oh, one thing I do need to say as well. I had the worst goddamn sore throat while we were recording this interview. I'm a melon, and I should have put muted my microphone, but I didn't, and I'm, I cough so much through. I do apologise, dear listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go. <sighs> Ladies and gentlemen... Interviewing this week, he is a musician in a KISS tribute act, a radio host, a football commentator, and an all-round musician, solo artist. It's Ian Dantara! Dear listeners, today's guest is one of those beautiful surprises you find when you stumble across, and boy am I glad I did. I had an idea to talk to someone in a tribute band, so I decided to go about finding one and in doing so, I found today's guest. Today's guest has not only been in tribute bands, he's a musician, obviously, releasing two solo albums, he's a radio host, a passionate football fan, and most importantly, like myself, he's a Brummie. For American listeners, that's someone from Birmingham. Joining us today is the incredibly talented, Barmy Brummie himself, it's Mr. Ian Danter. Hello, hello. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Jamie. No, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here, sir, especially when I was going through your resume. I was like, ah. Oh. No, this yeah. should be a great conversation. Yeah, not all of it stands up in court, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, examination, uh, examination, I might struggle. But um, no, yeah, well, yeah, it's it's a um, it's a been a pretty full life, I suppose you could say so far. Yeah, it's good. It's it's incredible. But I mean, how has the last year been for you? The killer question. Well, when lockdown first hit uh, in March. Um, Obviously, everything completely shut down from my work point of view um, because sport shut down. And I'm, at the moment, my main role is a football commentator. 
So what I did was after a couple of weeks of wondering, you know, what the flip, I decided to revisit um, an old radio show that I used to do on BRMB radio in Birmingham. Jamie will know that well. Um, I had a show called the Barmy Brummies, which was a drive time show, which was all sketches and parody songs, uh, characters, things like that, utilising my voices and my musical talents. And basically, just above me here, I've got all the mini discs with every sketch and parody song I ever came up with. So I had the means to transfer those mini discs into my computer. So I thought, right, let's let's do a nostalgia podcast, see if anybody in Birmingham remembers this nonsense. So I started the Barmy Old podcast. Um, and within six or seven weeks, we were, Sean and Andy, my old writing partners, came back on board and said, right, let's write some new stuff. So by the, by the time we got to the end of the first series, which was like 26 episodes, rather than it being an archive podcast of old stuff, it was 90% new stuff. Amazing. That's incredible. So what a way to utilise the time. Well, it, 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 filled a, it filled a gap, you know, once we got to sort of late June, early July, when Project Restart began and I actually started, you know, working again uh, in, you know, uh, empty stadia doing uh, commentaries, then time started to become a little bit more difficult to devote to it. So I will get back to doing some more Barmy Old podcasts, but um, that was basically how I got through the lockdown. Excellent. I mean, but how weird was it to go back to stadiums with no fans? <laughs> it's always been weird. Uh, it, 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 you know, it doesn't get any less weird with every game that you do. The first one I did was Brighton against Arsenal uh, when the Premier League came back. Yeah. And of course, you you know, you get to the ground, there's all the rigmarole of getting through the, the, the temperature checks and as well as the bag searches. You can't leave your seat unless you go into the toilet. If you go into the toilet, you have to clean up after yourself, you know, properly, you know, sanitise where you've been. Yeah. And, you know, that didn't get any less weird with whatever ground I went to, whether it was Premier League or a championship club or a League One or a League Two. The protocols were there everywhere I went. And, you know, the, the requirement to, you know, stick to the rules. So, uh, you know, you knew you were in a privileged position where fans would love to be. And that just heightened the responsibility of doing a good job as a commentator. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got people listening to you thinking, I wish I was there with him, but I'm not. So take me there. So, yeah. you know, mm. you get that increased responsibility of, of more listeners who who want that um, picture painted for them. Absolutely. Just because, I mean, I used to be obsessed with football back in the day. I'm not so much now. Then again, Funnily enough, I'm actually Scottish. I know the accent gives it away. Um, so, <laughs> so the SPL is obviously where I is not what I normally watch, and you know the level in Scotland's not what it's like. And it, I mean, English Premier League football is probably the pinnacle now. I mean, it's probably the top dollar, the top dog, where everybody wants to play and where it wants to be. So, I mean, for watching Scottish football with no fans just felt like I was watching a normal game anyway. <laughs> I'm half Scottish myself. My um... My mum's from uh, Grangemouth. Oh, uh, wow. So my Scottish team, because of my uncle Jimmy, is Falkirk. And Falkirk have had an absolutely dreadful time of it. 
down in Scottish League One now. We were for a time we were that classic, much like my first love, Birmingham City. We Falkirk flitted between the Premier League and the Championship, and then they went down to to League One. So it's not been good for the Bairns in the last few seasons. No, I do want to go there one day. I've never I've never seen a Falkirk home game, so I'd love to get to the Falkirk Stadium sometime and and take in match. I mean, do you always stick to the Premier League Championship? No, no, I, I'm I, this this season in particular um, has been mostly Championship for me, but there's been a you know a fair amount of uh, League One and and League Two. I was just this past weekend at Forest Green I'd, in League Two. I'd never been there before. It's it's a ground in Nailsworth in in the Cotswolds in Gloucestershire. Um, and it was an extraordinary game against Newport for the right to go to Wembley for the playoff final. Um, so yeah, you get to go all around the country. So you you, you go to a, you know a Premier League ground where everything's you know depending on the ground you go to. Some Premier League grounds are better than others, but generally the the, the standard of the facilities and uh, your workspace and everything is just perfect. Yeah. And then you go down the leagues and everything's a bit more tight and compact, and <laughs> you just have to make the best of it. But you don't get any less of a welcome uh, or any less of a friend, a friendly face to greet you when you get to some of these stadium in the championship and League One, League Two. So just, it's great for you know for knowledge and broadening the horizons and everything. You know. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, man. Cool. Just when you were talking about, and I'm going back a little bit there. When you talk about BRMB, that jingle instantly came back to my head. I swear that'll haunt me forever. That jingle, ninety six point four FM BRMB. Go it, go off in my head because that was the trap clips that would set people's cars off. To the, the travel bulletin was coming. That did, <laughs> and the end of every travel bulletin. So, um, Just wake up in a cold sweat when I did. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was. That was my first job, for those that don't know. My first job at BRMB when I started working there was the flying eye um, travel guy. I was the guy up in the plane, 1,500 feet above Brum, doing the travel news. Um, so you'd, you'd get up at half four, five o'clock in the morning, get to Birmingham Airport, to the cargo entrance, not the, the main passenger entrance, but the cargo entrance uh, on the Cobb Road. And you'd go up in a twin-engine Seneca... Uh, plane with a pilot you'd sit next to the pilot he'd be on the right you'd be on the left and that was it that was your morning sometimes you had uh, guests come up with you you know um, people that advertise with the station or prize winners or something like that who'd want a trip to go up in the, the flying eye and many of them were sick as dogs fucking <laughs> <laughs> I can just, I can just imagine that you're like, there's a lot of traffic on the M6, and all you can hear in the background. <laughs> pretty much the long and the short of it. Some because what happened was, if you came across a, a major accident, what you had to do once you got permission from air traffic control, you could circle that accident. So let's say it was at I don't know junction ten of the M6 or something, you would circle that for as long as it took for you to, you know, get all the information you needed and where the delays and checking all the escape routes and what was happening so doing that if you're not used to being in a plane that would send them all oh they'd get all bilious <laughs> amazing well you've done a lot of cool things over the years you know as tom was saying we were going for your resume it's like 
Jesus Christ, this is incredible. But what was the original career plan for young Master Danta? What was the first thing you really wanted to sink your teeth into? Rockstar. Rockstar, love it. Rockstar. Um, and that would have been, I don't know, from the age of 10 or 11. Um, I was listening to rock music before then, courtesy of my two older brothers. But once I heard Kiss Alive, which was an album I borrowed off my cousin who lived just around the corner from us. Um, that first side of music, those first five songs on Kiss Alive, Juice, Strutter, Got to Choose, Hotter Than Hell, Firehouse, that 12, 15 minutes of music totally changed my life. Beautiful. And changed my idea of what I thought I would like to be. Because the, the excitement that that, album generated in me made me want to be a rock star. I was already playing piano by this point because my dad was a brilliant <coughs> guy. So I, I started taking piano lessons at the age of eight or nine and I was okay. I was going through my grades and stuff. But once I heard Kiss, I knew I wanted to be a, a rock star and I didn't equate piano playing with being a rock star. I felt I had to go another route. And I ended up with the drums when I was about 11. Um, I didn't get a proper kit until I was 14. So it was a bit of a wait to get the, the proper drum kit. But yeah, uh, that's all it ever was, Jamie. From the age of 10 or 11, I had delusions of, of grandeur. <laughs> and that persisted probably for the next 20 years. <laughs> That's amazing. You, you're absolutely right, though, about that first side of Kiss Alive. It's a lot of the diehard Kiss fans say that, though, because a lot of, that was how they discovered Kiss, because those first three albums weren't the biggest of sellers, were they? So, no, and, and it, it was released over here. Kiss Alive was because it belonged to my cousin, right, Don, who, you know, he had one or two Kiss albums in his collection. I'd just gone around to his house because my brothers, who had Thin Lizzy and Deep Purple and Rainbow albums, which were great as well, I loved them, but. <laughs> They didn't like their horrible little brother listening to the same music they were. So I thought, sod off and go and find something you like. So I'd gone round to my cousin's house to see what he had in his collection, what I could borrow. And Kiss Alive was one of the first things I, I stumbled across. So it just so happened it was Kiss. It could have been another band that I spotted just flicking through. But, you know, um, it just happened it was that great cover but I would urge any, anybody who likes rock music just to try that first side of Kiss Alive because I was so in love with it at the time I didn't play sides two three and four for weeks through <laughs> absolute sheer terror that the rest of the album wasn't going to be as good as those first five songs <laughs> I was just playing side one side one all the time and eventually I plucked up the courage to flip the first disc over to side two and play nothing to lose and you know come on and love me parasite and she and away you know i thought oh, this is brilliant too and then you listen to side three and there's the drum solo on a hundred thousand years and paul stanley interacting with the crowd in 1975 and getting people to stand up at a gig people didn't stand up at gigs in those days but he's making them stand up this is nuts is that what happened at rock concerts in america so yeah I was completely sold on Kiss by that point, and I spent the next year or two or three just amassing whatever Kiss release I could 
get my hands on. By that time, um, it would have been sort of 79, 78, 79. So I managed to get everything up to Dynasty and um, Unmasked, which was the 1980 album. Yeah. The first album I actually remember buying brand new when I knew that the record was out and it had a release date, ended up being the concept album that they did. Music Ooh, the Elder. Kid. Yeah, which was, a it, for those, well, you would know this, Tom, but it, it was the first Kiss album that didn't have Kiss on the cover. It was just uh, a hand reaching up to a, a, a door knocker on a big wooden door. It's meant to be a big concept piece that Kiss decided they needed to do to please the critics. Um, so that was the first album I bought on the day of its release. And that was a tester, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not the best start, is it? Like a 13-year-old kid who's, you know, listened to rock and roll all night and Detroit Rock City, and you're suddenly being presented with orchestras. and <laughs> I'm know. just a boy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stanley singing falsetto. This is, this is a tough gig. But, yeah, you know, I, I stuck with them. So... Yeah, going back to your original point, yeah, it was just all about wanting to be a rock star. So playing the drums came out of that desire to, you know, follow that path and that delusion, if you will. That's amazing. I mean, I wouldn't call it delusion as such because when I was growing up, I wanted to be a musician as well. But I mean, I came into music. My dad introduced me to like Nirvana, Nine Inch Nails, like Metallica, that sort of era. Mm. Um, and that's what I grew up on. And I always wanted to be a rock star too. Um, I tried my hand at bass and at singing, not very well. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was what it was at the end of the day. Uh, I had a bit of a laugh, so. Well, you, know, you, you, you find your path in the end. I mean, I found a like-minded soul at school in uh, Andy, who was pretty much the only other person in the whole West Midlands who'd heard of Kiss in my <laughs> age group, never mind like them. Um, but it just so happened that he loved them as much as I did. Uh, and he was a bass player, so um, we decided we were going to form a band before we left school. And eventually we found a guitar player, uh, Keith Laurent, who's still my best mate to this day, um, in the mid-80s. And we started a band, a three-piece. Um, and we were ambitious right from the off. We, Andy was designing stage sets, you know, that we would soon be playing on, you know, with, we called ourselves Minotaur. And we had this idea that, uh, the drums would be set up on, on the, the Minotaur would be the back of the stage and the drums would be set up on the fists of the Minotaur. It's it amazing. And they would levitate. At, you know, <laughs> absolutely. Po-faced balls. But <laughs> we wrote original songs. We didn't just do covers. We, we thought, you know, we're going to write original songs straight away. But of course, you know, we're, we're, we're just kids. So, um, and we'd never had a singer in the three years that we were together, just drums, guitar and bass, I ended up having to do all the, the singing, which isn't a good look on stage, really. We never had a front man to, um, to make us look good. But that was the start of it, you know, the start of writing songs and having that desire to get better as a musician and a songwriter, kind of all in one, really. It must be so difficult to sing and drum at the same time. I had to learn again. It was kind of like the pat head rub stomach thing. Oh. At the time, my drumming was, you know, so-so. 
because I'd only really been playing with, with the kit for two years or so. I wasn't a virtuoso by any stretch. Um, but yeah, I had to, basically what I had to do was I had to um, get my personal stereo, my SciShow personal cassette stereo thing from Dixon's, whatever it is I'd got for Christmas. I had to sellotape it to my head. So <laughs> that's not where I thought that story was going. <laughs> so the headphones wouldn't fall off because I'd be drumming along to the Kiss album, Lick It Up, and singing along to it whilst I was trying to master the technique of singing and drumming at the same time. I got there in the end, and it's been very useful to me down the years. Um, but maybe if I hadn't bothered, then we might have found a decent front man and things might have been different. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fantastic way to learn, though. I love that. I took the coving off the... You know, you've you got that sort of coving on top of your walls. Oh, yeah. Uh, my drumming was so loud, I removed the coving. It was like coming loose <laughs> in, the, in the walls in my, my, my bedroom at my mum and dad's old house, which didn't go down well. But um, Imagine not, no. <laughs> and that's why it, it, we ended up getting a, a, a youth club to go and rehearse in, which was in a fairly remote place just outside Solihull, so we could make as much noise as we liked and we weren't going to disturb anybody. When I moved into this house, I had a nightmare removing the coving from the ceiling. If I'd known all I had to do was get a drum kit and just play as loud as fucking possible, that would have made my life so much easier. There you go. It's, you know, <laughs> there's a proper life hack for you. That's an amazing <laughs> hack. I love that. You mentioned mine at all. I was looking and like all the different bands you've been in. There's some, there's some incredible names and I'm not even joking that I like, Shotgun Wedding is an yeah. incredible name for a band. Absolutely love that. And City Kids, Son of Gods, all amazing names, but all to different levels of success. Were you close to making it big with any of those? Because also, I saw you told the Tiger Tales at one point. Yes, we did. That was um, the City Kids slash Sons of God band, which came later. Shotgun Wedding um, was a band I joined in the late 80s. Uh, as just as drummer and it was a five piece and there was a time when Sony were interested in the band uh, Muff Winwood, who was a fairly well known uh, producer related to Steve Winwood, of course of Traffic and Spencer Davis Group um, his record company showed some interest in Shotgun Wedding but it never came to anything um, so we never really got that far up the the rock and roll ladder um, although we had a lot of fun trying, but Sons of God, which is what City Kids became. I, that Tiger Tales tour you're talking about, um, that was 1994. Um, we'd met City Kids in our Shotgun Wedding days and we'd become pally with them. And uh, after Shotgun Wedding had unfortunately bitten the dust, City Kids called me to say, we need a drummer. Can you come out on tour with us? So I did a tour with Tiger Tales going around the country. That was my first ever experience as a proper, you know, touring musician sleeping in the back of the transit van on top of my hardware case that I just put in there, you know, and trying to get comfortable by rearranging the duvet under you so you felt like you got something soft to sleep on. <laughs> uh, so, and that band got signed to a, a, a local independent label. But again, things never really, <coughs> um, never really progressed we never got that much um, recognition, but that wasn't for me. Wasn't a really good band with really good songs. Um, 
and I was a good I felt I was a good songwriter by that point and I felt well I've got I've got some work to do with these because I thought they were even better songwriters than I was so that raised my game in a sense Have you still get any like old demos or anything like that from these bands? Oh yeah yeah I mean you know um, Sons of God actually released an album a posthumous album years and years after the fact it was called We Were Never Really Here <laughs> probably struggled to find it it went on Amazon I think but it was just like most most of our demos and stuff that we'd done um, over time. Shotgun Wedding never released anything um, officially. But yes, if you might find a copy of Sons of God, we were never really here somewhere floating about in the ether. <laughs> I've tried to track that down. I mean, you did a lot of... Uh, I mean, you know, you, I know you didn't well, quite make it how you wanted to, but obviously you had your own bands and you played a lot of tribute bands as well. But just playing music generally, I imagine, was probably just the most amazing feeling ever, playing in front of people, you know, regardless. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're playing original music, then that's, of course, the most worthwhile thing because that's something that you've created from yeah. from scratch. Um, and, of course, when that doesn't work out for you uh, and you end up playing in covers bands or tribute bands, as I did, then you derive a, a different kind of satisfaction from playing it then becomes about the accuracy mm. of recreating what people want to see so the first tribute band i played with was a bon jovi tribute in birmingham called new jersey um featuring a couple of former members of shotgun wedding uh who were obviously still mates of mine and yeah it, you know everyone was looking at the john and the richie right no one understood what the bass player, keyboard player, or drummer looked like. My job was to play those parts accurately, you know, because if the drummer's not playing the parts right in a tribute band, you know, the right fills, the right accents, chances are the bass player's not going to do it either. And then the guitar player, and then, you know, keyboard player, it's not, it, it, the responsibility on the drummer is paramount to, you know, keep everybody else in line. Mm. So you learn that pretty quickly when you get into tribute bands because people notice when you're doing it the way they want to hear it. They appreciate it and they tell you so. And they also tell you when they don't think you do. Because <laughs> Bon Jovi's got a lot of bangers. They've got a load of bangers. We, we, I mean, it, of course, it didn't hurt uh, as, a, as a single man at that time that there were a lot of um, ladies that came to watch... Uh, <laughs> Bon Jovi tributes. Um, so I must admit that didn't hurt. We did a gig in in this in Norfolk once, and um, <coughs> one of the big songs of the night was always, you know, the ballad. Oh, yeah. I love that song so much. <laughs> and um, we were playing that, and there were two girls right at the front by the stage who were on uh, the guitarist side, uh, Dave, who was the Richie Sambora or Itchy Sombrero, as we probably called him. Itchy <laughs> Sombrero. And as he goes into the guitar solo, do, 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 you know, that, that's a very heartfelt. And these two girls start, start bawling their eyes out. Absolute, just because he's, I mean, we were joking, oh, you, you must have cocked it up, Dave. But no, it, <laughs> we knew he was playing, you know, bang on. And it just so happened, because we spoke to these two girls afterwards, and it just so happened it was their favourite song. 
was their favorite guitar solo. It's just the moment in time that mattered that much to them. And so they just started blarting whilst we're playing that song, which Incredible. as you're sat behind the drum kit, looking across at them is a little disconcerting, I must tell you. <laughs> but, but that's the level of, of, of how much these people invest in the bands and the songs that they love. And that's why you've got to get it right. Another, I, I never really thought that much into it when it comes to tribute. That's a really good point. Because, you know, these songs mean a lot to people. So you're du duplicating not only the songs that mean to them, but the performance of that song. It, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. When you get onto the, the Kiss thing, um, you know, I started a Kiss tribute in 2003, but then was asked to join Dress to Kill, the longest running Kiss tribute in the world, a couple of years later, and I jumped at that chance. Uh, because they were, you know, one of the biggest tribute acts in the country. Then you get to a whole, whole new level of accuracy. You've got to have the right looking instruments to play with, right? Mm. Guitar player's got to have a, a, a Cherry Sunburst Les Paul. Paul Stanley's got to have a like a, an Iceman Ibanez guitar. You know, bass player's got to have a black Spectre. I've got to have a black drum kit, you know, with a KISS logo on the front head. We've got to have the right costumes. We wore the 1977 Love Gun era costumes. Mm -hmm. You've got to have the right makeup, of course, you know, that, and you spend, so you get to a show typically like four o'clock in the afternoon to sound check. The four of us would set up. We'd have somebody, one other guy with us who would set up the, the pyros that we'd use. So we'd sound check, and then we'd have to go straight to the dressing room and get into makeup and costume because it took us two hours and during that two hours the support band would put their gear on stage in front of ours do their set come off and then once we're ready you know makeup wig boots whatever in place we go on we play a 22 23 song set running all eras of kisses music um and then end of the gig we go out and meet people they want their photos taken, of course, with someone that looks like they're in Kiss. They'd always want to take a photo. Um, and then you go backstage, you scrape the makeup off, you come back out, you break your equipment down, load it back into the van, and off you go. It's a long old day. Wow. <laughs> it's like you say, especially with like a Kiss one as well, it's not just the sound, the look, and it's an act. You've got it like... Ash, is it Ash that plays Paul Stanley? Yeah. Ash, Ash, Ash bore the brunt of it because he's the front man. He's yeah. Stanley. And um, there was one show where we, we'd done the, the gig and it was a roaring success. I can't think of any Dressed Kill gig that wasn't, you know, a really, really great night. We never had any duff nights. There were always Kiss fans just absolutely lapping it up, licking it up, you might say. Hey. <laughs> we went out into the audience to uh, thank people and have photos. And um, I was chatting with some guy and then I could hear this bloke come up to Ash, who was stood behind me and go, oh, brilliant, brilliant big mate, brilliant big, but just, um, just one thing. And Ash went, oh, right, did we miss out a favorite song of yours? And he went, oh, no, 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 Setlist was, Setlist was amazing, man. I stole your love, oh. No, no. And so I said, oh, was, I know the pyro didn't go off like it should have done at the start of Logan. No, that's not, that's, don't worry about it, mate. Pyros were immense. And I said, well, what was the problem then? He said, well, you haven't 
you haven't got quite as much chest hair as the real Paul Stanley, do you? <laughs> Ta-da! You know, uh, so how, how on earth do you, you know... Well, so he's going to go and buy an Austin Powers, you know, <laughs> chest rug just to keep him happy. I mean, you know, there, there's no pleasing some people. That's got to be the weirdest criticism I think I've ever heard, ever. Yeah. My country mile. <laughs> so, when I originally emailed you, did we not discover that I was at your first Dress to Kill concert? Yes, yeah. the, Kiss, the Kiss Expo in Nottingham, yes. 2000. My, my first show with Dress to Kill was the... It wasn't annual, but it happened quite often. An expo, Kiss Expo. So, you know, uh, uh, Kiss merchandise guys would come with their wares to sell and there'd be other bands playing. This was at the Rescue Rooms in, in Nottingham, which was yep. just around the corner from Rock City. Um, and uh, we were, you know, headlining for my first show with the band. And the special guest of honour was uh, Eric Singer, who was Kiss's drummer in the nineties uh, for like, you know, the revenge tour. And at that point, I don't think, was he in the band? He might've been just got back into the band. I think, I think he was just before he got back in. Maybe, maybe he'd just been fired of the contract wrangles anyway. Um, he agreed to play four songs with Dress to Kill on my drum kit mm. as part of the show. So we came, we sound checked early in the morning that day before the doors opened. And he came over from the hotel and he was actually quite agreeable and friendly, you know, and had to sit behind my kit and just had a little tap around. He goes, yeah, that's fine. Honestly, he said, yeah, that's fine. And this is important because of what happened later. He then, uh, he was then, once the doors opened and people were letting, he came back and he was in, in a room where people were coming in to have things signed. And evidently that took a long time. And uh, when it came to the point in the show where he was coming on to play his four songs, don't think he was in the best of moods. Oh, he was a bit crabby from, you know, <coughs> all these autographs and what I don't know, but whatever it was, he had a hair across it, right? He wasn't happy. So he came and sat behind. So I moved out of the way and moved off stage. He sat behind my drums complained for about five minutes that it wasn't how he wanted it, even though it was exactly the same as it had been at Soundcheck. Eventually, he acquiesced and says, right, I'll do these songs. And he proceeded to smash seven shades of shit out of my drum kit over the next 15 minutes. Just brutal. Um, particularly my cymbals, to the extent that when I when he'd had enough and he'd done his four songs and disappear without so much as a, a thanks or a buy your leave, just skulk straight off stage, never to be seen again. It took me three minutes to readjust all my cymbal stands because everything was mangled to buggery. Um, and my uh, drum skins were pitted, you know, where he'd been hitting them so hard. Yeah. Um, and this was a really, it wasn't just a cheapo drum kit. It was a Pearl, he was a Pearl indoor seat. And this was a Pearl Masters custom he was playing on. And he just thrashed the shit out of it. And I thought, there's no need. I mean, my ass was going 50 pence, five pence. <laughs> That's a saying, I like that. Give the true colour of it, something like that's happening. Um, but yeah, so you did see my first uh, performance with, with Dress to Kill Jamie. And, and I played with him for five years 
after that, not just around the UK, but we played places in Europe too, Norway and um, Spain. We even did some gigs on the Orkney Islands. We even took a ferry right from, amazing. from uh, the north, Furso, uh, took a ferry up to um, Kirkwall, I think it was, um, on the Orkney Islands to play a show up there. Such was the demand for us. That means then I have your first ever show on DVD. Ah, now, wait a minute. Is that the one with Bruce Kulick? No, this is the Eric Singer one. Oh, that's it then. That's yeah. the one. That is my first show. So I'm pretty sure I'm trying. I think we played the Oath that night. I'd, I'd, I'd have to check the track listing, but I'm pretty sure we played uh, some rare. You did. You played it second. It's got the track listing on the back. <laughs> there you go. So we played things like the Oath. And when you played an expo with Dress to Kill, you really had to dig out loads of rarities when you played a standard show you uh gary our bass player used to talk about the dirty dozen the 12 songs you kind of have to play yeah his tribute band like rock and roll all night like detroit rock city uh like um oh cold gin things like that but then when you look at that that track listing you've got there jamie from that uh expo you'll find at least half of those are unusual yeah, like parasites on there. Like then, very rarely ever play that now. Well, that's the what's one of the ones that Eric played, parasite. Um, the things like Escape from the Island. I think we played it was an instrumental off the Elder. Just some bizarre stuff we played that night. But the diehards loved it. It was great. I I absolutely loved it. I I had a t-shirt, but I think all the the things that were on it fell off over the years, so it ended up. Yeah. Oil watch. They see that's always a always a. Risk. <laughs> but you actually beautifully went into my next question then really because i've often wondered with tribute bands like how do you decide what songs you're going to play is the is it like let's just play the hits or is it a case of i like this one let's do this one what will happen is gary uh the bass player was in charge really of the the, the set list because what he what he had he had an inventory of the set list we played at certain venues every time we've been there so let's take a couple of venue, um, like the Walthamstow Royal Standard in London that we used to play regularly. He had every set list that we'd done there down the years. So he knew what we should stick in there so as to avoid repetition. So if we were going to play something unusual, it wasn't going to be the same unusual song two shows in a row. So if we played... I don't know, put something out of it. Like, if we played Danger of Creatures of the Night there, we wouldn't play it again there the next time. We'd pick something like, you know, something off Crazy Nights or something interesting. So, as I mentioned, there was those 12 or 13 songs that you always put in, but it's what you mixed it up with that made it interesting. So, what a couple of weeks before each run of shows we did, Gary would send the set list through to us all. And of course we we tease him and send him replies, oh we're not playing that are we? <laughs> because we didn't mean it. Um because we knew that he was diligent enough to know what uh, worked last time and you know he he learned how to balance a set really well in my opinion so that it made it easy for me. And of course these were all songs that because we're all kiss nerds, the four of us we knew them, you know, backwards, and, you know, all ways to Sunday. So we didn't rehearse very often as a band, probably once a year, if we were working on something that was particularly obscure. The rehearsals came at soundcheck, really. Right, are we doing um, I've Had Enough? Yeah, okay. We, you know, there was one show where we, 
So I went into the um, intro to I've Had Enough of Animalize. They all joined in. We played the song straight through without any mistakes. And Gary said, right, let's drop War Machine. Let's put that in instead. So we played, that was the, the diamond in Sutton in Ashfield. So just by pissing about at, at Soundcheck, we added another song to the set. That's amazing. That's really good, you know. That is amazing, especially because Animalize as well. That's that's not a slow album. That is an, <laughs> those songs are a challenge. Kiss were playing much quicker. Their live shows, I think they wanted more energy. That they, they told Eric Carr to play with more tempo uh, during the eighties. They they calmed it down once they got to the late eighties, early nineties. But yeah, so a song like I've had enough was a well. It's a challenge in itself, but in the midst of a, another 22, 23 songs that you're playing, these were pretty punishing shows. Remember, I've got makeup on uh, and, you know, lights everywhere. Uh, I'm not a professional drummer. I'm semi-professional, you know. So it, it took, took its toll if you weren't at least relatively fit and ready for it. Did you ever... Plug, so I'd take your headphones back on and do backing vocals or anything like that at all. <laughs> I had to go out front and sing Beth, which was the big Peter Chris mm. ballad from Kiss. So I actually wrote, uh, it was a song with, uh, you won't know this, right, Tom, but there was a, it was a song with orchestras on it and it, it was a very heartfelt love song that Peter Chris had on Destroyer, which was a big album for Kiss. So he, he used to, Peter Chris used to sing it to a backing tape with the real band every night. So I did it as well. So I, I wrote the backing track, composed it at home. Um, and I sang to that pretty much every show, came out from behind the drums, threw roses out into the crowd like Peter Chris used oh. to. Um, made sure I took the thorns off first. Uh, <laughs> and that was an, another part of the accuracy, another part of the desire to be just like the real thing. That sounds so amazing. I mean, I know, again, going back, you said that, you know, we were gutted that you didn't get signed, but that just sounds wonderful. I know it's dedication to one band, but it just sounds like you had so much fun, you know, nailing it night after night after night. It just, with Pyro, you know, you fully kitted out. Like, you know, I'm a little bit jealous. I would love to have done something like that, just a tribute to whoever and done it properly. Just what? sounds like you had a wonderful time. I have played with a few um, tribute bands, down the years. I mentioned the Bon Jovi one. I um, I guested, I helped out an Aerosmith tribute called Toxic oh. with a few gigs when they needed a, a drummer. Um, I played for some years in Birmingham in one of the funniest bands ever. Ian the Goat sings Black Sabbath, which was kind of a parody Black Sabbath tribute. Ian the Goat was a, a stand-up comic and big Sabbath fan that I knew. Big burly guy. One of the funniest guys I've ever met. And Stu Clark, who was a guitar player, worked with me at Musical Exchanges, the guitar shop I used to work in. And he was a tiny little thing, but what a player. And then concocted this idea of a pantomime Black Sabbath show centered around the fact how much Ozzy Osbourne and Tony Iommi hated each other. So <laughs> have a pantomime Sabbath show where Ozzy would come on with his, you know, white tassel shirt on, you know, and he gets sacked after two numbers for ruining... <laughs> Tony So I, and you know, it was just, I, I could bore you with it, Brad. One of the funniest things I've ever done. I'm, you know, 
But the dress to kill thing, obviously, given my love of, of the band, the love, my love of Kiss, that was particularly important to me to get the accuracy right. To me, you know, never mind the audience mm. to be accurate. I wanted to do Peter Chris, Eric Carr, Eric Singer, the three drummers of Kiss Justice, and try to play the shows as kind of an amalgam of their three styles, if you like. Before we move on for this, do you still have the costume? Yeah, it's in the loft. Uh, it's been washed, just in case. Um, it is there, um, ready, in case um, anything was ever <laughs> thrown my way. Because Dress to Kill is still going. They are still mm. the longest running Kiss tribute in the world. Uh, but most of them are based up in the Northwest now. But, um, oh, yeah. If the call ever came... I'd, uh, I'd put the old clown white back on again, no problem. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so we need to talk about your radio work. So it was around the time of Son of God that you got into radio, wasn't it? Sons of God had just kind of fizzled out. So how did that come about again into radio? That was all about um, my friend Keith Laurent, who I mentioned earlier, who was in my first band with me. He'd written a letter to the uh, head of sport, at BRMB saying my mate Ian does the best Trevor Francis impression you've ever heard you should get him on the radio <laughs> and Tom Ross who was the head of BRMB Sport read this letter and thought there was something in it so he rang me at the guitar shop I worked at and asked me to write a sketch for the Saturday afternoon football show that they did you know prior to a live commentary of either Aston Villa or Birmingham City or West Bromwich Albion whoever it may be and so I did that for a few months. And to cut a long story short, that was a few months later was when I got offered the chance to do that flying eye job that I mentioned before mm. in the plane. And from that, what grew out of that was a chance to do on-air shifts as a presenter on the, the AM station, Extra AM as it was known, but um, it became known as Capital Gold. Um, and within two years of, of, of going up in the plane to do my first um, travel bulletin um, I was the drive time presenter doing what was called the Barmy Brummies it was a pretty rapid change you know in my life I'd given up the, the, the career I had working in the music industry I've been working as a guitar salesman and I'd become a guitar distributor distributing guitars to retail shops but I'd given all that up um, and it was a bit of a risk at the age of what, what would I have been 29, nearly 30, to do this handbrake turn career-wise. I mean, you know, I'm still here, um, so it's, it's not gone that bad. But, you know, it was it was a risky step to take because I could have been dreadful. And I probably yeah. was in the early days. <laughs> <laughs> too hard for yourself here. Too, too hard. But what I'm saying is obviously because it, you obviously, they drastically push you through within two years, you must have felt that you found your calling. I think the confidence grew within me once, funnily enough, once I was put on overnights because I'd been doing the, 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 the travel stuff, you know, Monday to Friday. And um, I tried a few cover shifts here and there. And the boss said, I need to hear more of your comedy, more of your voices. You're not doing enough. And he was right, you know. So he said, I'm putting you on Saturday into Sunday overnights, midnight till six carte blanche do what you want 
bring in who you want, just make it funny. So I contacted at that point, my friend, Steve Beebe, who to this day is still a writer on Kerrang! magazine. Uh, and I'd got to know him in the shotgun wedding days and he'd become a really good friend. And he came on board with me um, and was my sidekick. Uh, and we started doing stuff during the night. And we used to have these things called um, snoop sessions where, and these were the bane of radio presenters existence. You would take a cassette, take it into the, the studio where you were doing your program. You put the cassette into the machine that was there and you'd switch it on to record and pause, right? So it's on like on standby. Yeah. Every time you open the mic fader to say something, the cassette would go to record and play. When you'd finished and you pull the mic fader down, the cassette would spool around for a couple of seconds and then go back to record and pause, meaning it would record every link that you did in that show and would cut out all the music. You could then give that to your program controller and he would listen to that either the next day or the day after. And he would more than likely get you into the office to critique you on it. And these were brutal things, snoop sessions, you know, because you'd sit there and you'd hear the first link and you think, well, that's okay. And he'd stop the tape and go, what was, what did you do that for? Um, what do you mean? So, and, and you know, that, that it was all about trying to make you the best person you could be. But as I say, it was tough love, but through that overnight show, my confidence, as you mentioned about, you know, confidence, my confidence grew about doing comedy and, 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 you know, just generally being on the radio and doing the things you're meant to do, housekeeping and, and you know, making it sound slick and, and well-produced and tight. And that's why the drive time thing came along because I learned pretty quickly what worked and what didn't for me. And it seemed to hit home with the the audience. And next thing you know, I'm doing drive time. It's amazing. Does that mean that you found out that you could do the voices that you could do the impressions during the overnights? Oh no, I knew I could do them. It was just finding a context in which they worked. You know, um, finding situations in which you could make a Billy Connolly or a Trevor Francis or a, a William Hague work in, in a, you know, what sort of situation, how do you set these things up? And it was also important. You learn about word economy, actually, in those days, more than anything else about. There's the great saying of Joe Perry and Aerosmith about songwriting. He said, don't bore us, get to the chorus. <laughs> nice. I like that. Nice. When, oh. when it comes to sketch writing and, you know, comedy stuff, that, kind of also applies the idea of get to the punchline <coughs> and then get out. Don't out, don't let a joke outstay its welcome or a situation mm. outstay its welcome. So you learn very early on the idea of keeping sketches reasonably short so that they had more effect that way. That was just all part of the confidence growing within me uh, and Steve too. But when the Barmy Brummies came along, Steve, didn't fancy a career in radio working five days a week. He went back to his writing and his uh, journalisting thing. So the Barmy Brummies was a different group. Me and two brilliant stand-up comics and writers, uh, Sean and Andy, and um, they were amazing. And they they were the Barmy Brummies team for those two years that we did drive. 
Incredible. You like as you just said, you know, you've done various different slots of the day, various different things. But and a lot of hosts, they sort of have their thing, you know, what they're known for. But you've done all sorts, like I said, comedy sketches, commentary. Was this you wanting to try different things, or was this the people at the radio going, Ian, you fucking smashed it, mate. Now let's try this. Well, um, Let's see. With BRMB, it was all about the comedy and, and it was all about, you know, sketches and songs and the characters we created. Um, when it came to, and I did the same on um, Heart FM because I left BRMB eventually uh, and I did a similar show, a weekly show rather than a daily show on Heart FM in the Midlands around the mid 2000s. But TalkSport came along because I was doing football work for BRMB and Capital Gold. They wrote me in as a reporter at first and then I became a commentator. So I'd, I was developing my football work, my broadcasting as a, as a commentator alongside what I was doing with the Barmy Brummies. So I was working six days a week. So you do five days a week, Barmy Brummies. Saturday, I'd go to a game and commentate on it. So you develop that skill set at the same time as you're developing the skill set as a as a drive time presenter, and you know totally different aesthetics required. So um, it was just circumstances, really, more than anything else. Just okay, what's required here? Um, so adaptability was the name of the game. I had to be as adaptable as possible to, you know, um, to be to be useful to a radio station or useful to a company that they could, they could, they could put me in different situations. And when it came to talk sport, um, I've been there 17 years and there's only me and one other guy who've worked and presented at pretty much every time slot around the 24 hour clock in a seven day period. I've done breakfast, mid morning, afternoons, drive, evening shows, late night, overnights, weekend breakfast shows, Saturday afternoon commentary, Saturday evening phone-ins, the lot. The only show I haven't done is the fishing show, and that ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I can't blame you for that at all. I'm quite prepared to let that go. But <laughs> that, that's, that's why I try to be, you know, versatile and try to make myself as, you know, handy to various producers and and bosses as I possibly could be. And I must have been doing all right because I kept getting these offers of work right around the right around the schedule, around the clock. Which is incredible. But going to the football commentary, right? We all know you're a massive Birmingham City fan. Does it hurt or break you in any way, shape? I know you can't really reveal that when you have to call Villa, Wolves, West Brom, Walsall, any of those teams at all? <laughs> I actually adopted Warsaw as a bit of, I'd have got a bit of a soft spot for them because Warsaw were the first team I regularly covered when Tom Ross started drafting me in as a reporter and then a commentator. So my first beat was regularly to go and watch Warsaw, who at that time were about to get promoted into what is now the championship. They were having one hell of a season under a, a chap called Ray Graydon who used to play for Aston Villa. And 
that was a great education as well because you were watching a team on the rise and the excitement that goes with it. Um, and even if I was just reporting it again in those early days, I was still doing what you would call off-air commentary. We have the rights to use, you know, goals, goal clips from off-air commentaries. Okay. So you, you learn commentary skills really quickly as well. Um, and I had my, my commentary favourites when I was growing up, David Coleman and Barry Davis and, oh. you know, and people like that when I was growing up. So, you, you, you know, you, you, you still want to be yourself. You don't want to be a, a facsimile of somebody. You still have to be yourself. But, you know, you draw upon all the expertise that they brought to bear. Um, and yet before, before long, before you got to the mid-2000s, the comedy thing had completely disappeared and my life centered around sport and commentaries and um and that side of things absolutely did you call any rivalry games did you call villa birmingham or west brom birmingham or anything like that never never did a villa blues game but um i must have done a blues west brom game i certainly did blues wolves a couple of times and wolves walsall um and i had no problem commentating on Villa games and you know again that was all part of the the, the 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 training so you would go and commentate on a Villa game even if you just report again you're doing a commentary on it some of which might be used and yeah you you know you're broadcasting to a partisan audience of Villa fans so I could have been childish and just gone oh yeah Villa school <laughs> <laughs> can't do it it's unprofessional so you learn pretty quickly. My opinion is utterly irrelevant. I've got to get the excitement across that Darius Vassell's just scored a winning goal at the Holt end in the last minute to beat West Ham, as happened, I think, very early on in my time um, doing those games. And you have to get that excitement across. And to do that, you've got to go Tonto. So I went Tonto. Is it, just imagine the sharp has been like, so unclean. <laughs> <laughs> If I heard it once, I've heard it a million times. We put on Facebook um, uh, off to Aston Villa tonight to commentate on blog. And the message was, wipe your feet on the way out. You know, all that. Yeah, I can imagine. Just uh, thinking I'd never heard it before. But what, what it does is that when you spend a, a length of time doing commentaries, um, that tribalism that's kind of ingrained into you as a supporter when you're it kind of dissipates a little. Mm. I still don't want Villa to win anything, you know, <laughs> um, but I'm, it's not, I'm not obsessed with them not winning anything, you know? Yeah. What, where, you know, I'm desperate to go on Twitter if they've gone 2-0 down and just troll people. That really doesn't interest me. <clears throat> the thing that blows my mind more than anything, okay, so, for example, let's take Arsenal Spurs. So, like, obviously, they don't, the fans do not like each other, but yet, Arsenal fans will cheer Harry Kane when he plays for England. Well, yeah, there's a suspension of disbelief there, isn't there? And it, you know, it's try and get into the mind of a football fan. It's never straightforward that the psyche of a football fan and what they deem to be acceptable, you know, and mm. we're in this era at the moment with this disgusting racism oh, mm. through social media. Marcus Rashford had it last night absolutely deplorable what he has to go through um 
and unfortunately it doesn't seem to be going away um i i, I despair really um those people are in a minority but they're still there and i um it, it's it's makes me really sad that yeah. people feel that they have to do that that it gives them i don't know what it gives them i don't know what inspires them to be as disgusting as they are but they still do it and i will never understand it no, no same it's when uh, all the millwall fans booed when they, kn- they knelt for blm and stuff i mean when that happened you see, you see yeah i mean some clubs tried really hard millwall as a club have tried so hard over the years to work with the community and you know prevent you know, the sort of incidents that you're talking about there. And let's be, every club's gotten. Oh, yeah. My club's gotten. My club had that complete lunatic that ran onto the pitch and tried to punch Jack Grealish yeah. a couple of years ago. Um, and that was sickening behaviour, indefensible. So every club has got them, um, whether it's one or two, 10 or 20, 300 or 400, you know? Um, Nobody can take the moral high ground as a football supporter and start looking down their nose at a club because, you know what? There's someone wearing your team's colours who's just as bad as that person that you're sneering at. So we have to, somehow we have to find a united front to drive this awful, awful racism out of the game. Because I thought it it was clearly never gone. It was certainly not as obvious as it was in the 80s where bananas were being thrown at black players like John Barnes. Um, But even that started to creep back in. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang had a banana skin thrown at him at an Arsenal game within the last 12 months. So it's still been there, dormant, and it seems something seems to have emboldened those racists. We could debate all night about what's done it and what's emboldened and what's what the catalyst has been, but it's brought them back out into the open. I don't follow football at all. So what you two are just saying that that's blown my mind. I had no idea that sort of thing happened. It still does. That is shocking. Any any player from any black player who has a even a mediocre performance, Jamie, and maybe doesn't score or misses what a fan would perceive to be an open goal. Honestly, that the, the they put send Instagram messages with emojis that you know they know exactly what they're doing. Oh yeah, yeah. The emo- I don't need to. Spell <coughs> it for you. And sometimes they don't even use emojis; they just use the worst language possible. And it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And I don't know how we stop it other than some way that social media companies can be forced to crack down on the instances that we see. Because it seems, you know, friends of mine get online abuse for different reasons and they report it to, you know, who they're meant to report it to on the social media platform they're on. And it gets short shrift. It just gets, no, that this doesn't violate our terms. It fucking does. 
do something. What, what, what are these people, what are these companies waiting for? We've had Caroline Flack take her own life because of what social media did to her. And don't spare me the, oh, she brought it on herself. Bullshit. No. You know, it's, it's really worrying that, you know, that, that there's a, a culture of bullying, racism, and then defense of that bullying and racism as though it's somehow acceptable. And there's a reason for it. It's, you know, I'm 52 years of age, you know, I've, <laughs> and I, I've never known it. Social media has just amplified the problem to a degree that um, obviously makes me realize it was always there. It just needed a vehicle to bring those horrible yeah. people out. What a shame. Yeah, oh, 100%. I completely agree with everything you just said. It's, social media has basically given them their voice now. They're allowed to have their opinion. And it's just everywhere, all there for the world to see. And it shouldn't be happening. Freedom of speech is one thing. Uh, you know, consequences is quite another. What about the consequences of free speech? Uh, and too many people jump in feet first with their insults, claiming the free speech banner, not thinking for a nanosecond about the consequences of what they're doing. That's the problem. But to bring it back around, my next question was going to be about how you prepare yourself for commentary for a football game. But like you were just saying then, like with fans running on the pitch and like hurling abuse, how do you learn how to deal with that? Do you just ignore it or do you address it? Um, if I'd been commentating that day when Jack Grealish was struck by the Birmingham fan that ran on the pitch. Yeah, I'd have mentioned it. Mm. I'd, give, I'd have just, I'd have torn that guy, I'd, I'd, you know, get him arrested. You can't ignore things like that. Most of the time at football grounds, yes, there's bad language and, you know, you don't hear, I don't remember hearing racism that much. To lighten the tone slightly, I mean, you know, I was at a game once um, this is years ago now, Millwall against West Bromwich Albion. It was an Easter Monday. And I can swear on this properly, can't I? Yes, yes of course. Can. Yes, yeah. Well, I've got to in this instance, because <laughs> uh, <coughs> the press box at Millwall in the main stand is quite close to where other supporters are. There's just a little wall uh, to the left of where you're sitting. And then beyond that, there's, I don't know, season ticket holders or regulars, whatever it may be. And um, myself and Tony Brown, Bomber Brown, the Albion's leading goal scorer in history, were doing this Millwall West Brom commentary. So I've got a headset mic on, right? Tony's got his headset mic on. And there's also, I've got uh, an effects microphone in another channel to pick up crowd noise. And about 10 minutes into the game, all you can hear is this guy, I can't see him, but I can hear him. He's about eight rows back. Going, oh, don't give it to that fucking cunt. Oh, <laughs> don't give it that, that fucking cunt's useless. Fucking get that cunt off the fucking thing. <laughs> shit, because I know my boss is listening to this because it was the only game that day. So I've turned off that effects microphone thing, right? That, that should do it. So it's just my headset and Bomber's headset, right? Make a scrap of difference. Oh, oh you fucking useless. 
useless fucking cunt. <laughs> so I've had to say, you know, during the it was the first instance you hear it all the time on Sky Sports now. But I'm going, no, I do apologise if you've heard any um, uh, foul and abusive language. Um, we had another game. There was another game on that day that I could throw to for a report and be off air for thirty seconds. So there was a Warsaw game on. So I thought, right, the game's going on. And I'm commentating. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm going to have to tell this bloke. I can't. And I haven't turned. I'm, I'm concentrating on the game. I'm just going to have to tell him when I get the chance. So at one point, I've gone right. Here's the moment because the ball had gone out of play or somebody was injured. So I could afford to go to the other game and get a report and we wouldn't miss anything. So I've said, okay, let's get across to the Bescott Stadium, get an update on Warsaw against Chesterfield, Ian Rivers. So Ian Rivers picks up at Warsaw and I whip the headphones off and turn around and go, excuse me, and I look and he's fucking massive. Yeah, of course he is. <laughs> he's 20 stone, he's a day. He's got the love, hate, tattoo. Uh, Ball, even he's got the swallow tattoo on his neck, you know. I mean, just the the, the worst I could have encountered. But I thought, right, I've got to go through with this. So I've whipped the headphones. Off. Excuse me, mate. Um, I'm broadcasting back to an audience back in the Midlands, a family show, and your language has been picked up on our effects microphones. Would you mind? Would you mind moderating your language, please? And what could he have done? He could have walked down six steps and just popped one on my face, couldn't he? Just knocked me out or, you know, stormed off or got a steward got me thrown out. But his response was priceless. His response was, oh, sorry, mate. Oh, I really, oh, I, I am so sorry. I didn't, I really am really desperately, desperately, you know, it's, it's not what I'm like, but, you know, I'm, I'm really desperately sorry. But he is a fucking cunt, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he has turned back, put the headphones on, I'm ready to go back on air. And for the next 10 minutes, he was good as gold. Next and, 10 minutes. Yeah, because then the Millwall manager, whoever it was at the time, made a substitute he didn't agree with. Oh, don't bring that fucking cunt on. <laughs> and I just looked at Bomber and couldn't have done any more. And that was that. So, you know, you just have to roll with the punches. But although, thankfully, in this case, it wasn't literally. That was incredible. I love that. But we, as we were talking earlier about your comedy and stuff like that on radio, uh, I saw reference to a parody song, uh, Des Lynam's Seven Days. <laughs> and it's saying it picked up national press notes, but I couldn't find any examples online or what. You'll find Can... it on the first episode of the Barmy Old Podcast, right? So if you, if you go to iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and look for Ian Dancer's Barmy Old Podcast, you will find that parody song on episode one. That was because at the time, Des Lynam was, he was the big star. You know, he was the host of the Premiership, you know, the ITV Match of the Day, you know, show. And um, we had this idea of him singing Craig David's Seven Days. I feared it was going to be Craig David's. <laughs> yeah, because it was kind of, he was the housewife's choice. <laughs> So we had this of him singing to uh, Unrequited Love and we just changed the lyrics around a little bit. So it was on Monday, took her for a drink on Tuesday. We were making love by Wednesday and on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, chilled out on Sunday. Nasty rash on Monday. 
<laughs> clinic on the Tuesday, antibiotics on the Wednesday, and on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, chilled, you know, cleared up on <laughs> That got a bit of notoriety. Um, Chris Tarrant, who was doing Capital Breakfast in London, heard it and played it on his breakfast show. And the coup de grace was some months later where BRMB always used to hold a thing called Party in the Park, where you get the pop acts of the day to come to, in this case, Alexandra Stadium in Perry Bar. And, you know, you, Billy Piper and Steps and whoever um, to do two or three songs to 30,000 people as it was. And the, it was the programme controller's bright idea for me to go on and sing as Des Lynham doing Seven Days. Uh, that's about the most bizarre thing I have ever done in my entire life. <laughs> and it got a huge round of applause. I, it was just adulation um, for, you know, singing this Des Lynham parody song. That, so that song definitely had a life of its own. Uh, that's just one of a number of parody songs we did, but that's probably the one that the Barmy Brummies were were best known for. Singing it to 30,000 people as Des Lynham was odd. Did, did Des ever say anything? I'm not sure whether Des was ever truly aware of it. The, the, the Sunday Sport ran a story on it. <laughs> I don't know whether Des buys the sport. So um, <laughs> he, may never, he may never have been aware of its existence. Aww. And I've never met the legend uh, to... To finally find out the truth, he's he's probably long since forgotten whether he'd heard it or not. But um, no, he, he certainly—I don't think he'd heard it at the time. But Chris Tarrant definitely played it on Capital Breakfast Show in London a few times. That's so, phenomenal. So the only thing that could have made that part in the park bit a bit any weirder is if they just gone, "Ladies and gentlemen, Craig David," and just comes out and sings it with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably more expected Avid Marion uh, or you know Bo Selector. Oh, that would have been amazing. <laughs> And all that sort of stuff. Uh, that would have been more likely. <laughs> real freight, David. Yeah. That, that, no, thanks, Jamie. It was bizarre enough, thanks, without <laughs> down even stranger path. Could you think of any of the other parody songs you did over the years? I'm just intrigued now. Oh, man. Um, loads. Oh, crikey. I mean, where do, where do you want to start? I mean, um, one that made me laugh. Um, definitely made me laugh we, we we had this there was a story that a center parks um had had a an accidental fire nobody was injured right let's get this out there nobody was hurt there was just a, a blaze in one of those sort of thatched roofs things mm. at a center parks i think it might have been the one at Longleat. anyway it doesn't matter so sean and i the next day we'd seen these headlines and we checked to make sure there were no injuries. Nobody was just a blaze that they had to put it out and everything, you know, fire engines and whatnot. And Sean said to me, I've got an idea. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, um, "You because we had, a, we had a, a keyboard and a guitar ready in our spare studio to record a parody song on the fly. It had a drum machine on it. And I could like bounce tracks. I'd, I'd play a drum part first and then a bass part and then add guitar on and maybe keyboards if he needed a piano part. So he wrote a version of Park Life by Blur. 
<laughs> and instead of park life, it was park fire. Um, and that's a centre park fire. You know, it's like I wake up what I want. I wake up when I want. Except when I was rudely awakened by a raging inferno. Centre park fire. Uh, and that I, I got. I, I remember. I, what used to happen? I would be putting these parody songs together in the spare studio at BRMB, which was directly next door to the on-air studio. And Tammy Gooding, who was the presenter on before me, she had a button on her console where she could press it and she could hear what I was doing in that next door studio. Now she could see me singing away into this microphone and she's, what is he doing? What's he up to now? You know, what's he doing today? So she, and I was just finishing off Centre Park Fire. You know, all the people, they all go, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and she, collapsed in a fit of giggles of what I was doing. She said, you can't do that. I said, everyone's fine. No one's, it's just, you know, no one's got injured. So, yeah, that that was a song I was particularly fond <laughs> of, I think. And we did, we also did one that got us in a bit of trouble. Um, Olympics, 2004. We were at Heart FM by this time. And I, I seem to remember Team GB swimmers I'd gone to this Olympics. Don't ask me where it was, this Olympics. But anyway, they'd gone there with a big reputation to get lots of medals. And they only got, out of all the competitions they entered, no gold, no silver, just a couple of third places. And um, Sean, Sean and I got together and we did a... By this time, I was able to record stuff at home because it was a weekly show, so I had more time to be intricate with arrangements. And we did, um, you'll find this on the Barmy Old podcast as well, but two or three episodes in, same as Parkfire. We did a version of Spandau Ballet's Gold, <laughs> but we just called it Bronze. <laughs> just to highlight the fact that we hadn't been as good as we thought we were. And we got complaints, you know, how dare you denigrate uh, the GB swimming team and run down their achievements. And we're thinking, hang on, we were told they were going to win 10 gold or whatnot, you know. They've ended up with two third places. We're just merely reflecting what's actually happened. So. It's just a bit of fun. It's not like it's anything serious or detrimental anyway, just a bit of a laugh. We weren't, we weren't libeling anybody. We weren't insulting. We were just yeah. saying, you know, you got two bronze, bronze. <laughs> so... And that was that meant that that was a lot of arranging for the. That's one of the most complicated songs I've ever had to write a <coughs> track for because I couldn't use karaoke tracks didn't really exist in those days that we could use. So I actually had to compose it, you know, to the arrangement we had, and learn the piano part and, and things like that. That was mental. So yeah, there's there's a few that I'm I'm proud of, like those that's two. A, that's amazing. Right, I, I wanted to bring it back to music. Because um, in 2013, you released your first solo album, uh, Prove You Wrong, which is great, by the way. I especially liked Brilliant. Oh, thank uh, you. What was it that made you decide, you know, I'm, I'm going to write and record my own album? And by the way, listeners, if my research is correct, you played all the instruments and vocals on this album. Um, I played all the instruments and did some of the vocals. Um, Lee Small from uh, Shine Phenomena did most of the lead vocals on my first album. 
when it came to the second album, a couple of years later, that was all me. But Prove You Wrong was the outgrowing of um, a very sad time. Um, I'd become friends with um, the, the band Shy, who were a kind of a British sort of Bon Jovi type band. I remember Shy, yeah. Some good success in the 80s and whatnot. But um, in um, 2011, if I've got my timings right, uh, Steve Harris, the guitar player, passed away, a uh, brain tumour. He was able to put uh, Shy's last album together whilst he was, his condition was deteriorating, knowing that, you know, he was on borrowed time and he had to get this album finished. And it was at his funeral when I was just chatting to the producer of that last album. And he was talking about Steve's desire. Well, you know, if anything could happen, he, he might not make the next day. So he felt he just had to get these songs down on tape and, you know, get the things out of his head and onto a reel of tape and get them out there. And I just had a light bulb moment at that point and thought, well, I've got all these songs that I've never properly recorded. If I've ever recorded a song with a band, it's been demoed in like one day, like a rush job sort of thing. So let's do this properly. So that's that was the, the, the seed of, of Prove You Wrong where it was about half and half, half songs that I'd always wanted to record from my old days that I'd never done, and some brand new stuff, like the opening track you hear, Soulmate, on Prove You Wrong. That was a brand new song that I'd written that year for when it came out. It came out in 2013, but that was all recorded during 2012 in Birmingham. So, yeah, it was just an itch I had to scratch, really. Like I said, it's, it's really, really, really good. <laughs> Well, you know, it was it was a labour of love, and it, um, getting I, I wasn't confident in myself as a lead vocalist at that time, which is why Lee was brought in to sing the vocals that he did. Um, but by the time we got round to the second album that I started recording the year after, and that was released in 2015, second time around, I was much more confident in myself as a as a lead vocalist. So, 99% of that album, say for a a uh, couple of bits of backing vocals done by a good friend of mine, Jane Gould. That was all me when it came to that second record, which I think is better than the first, but that's a matter of opinion. So was it tough to put all your focus into like doing this album, especially with like no bandmates and not to bounce ideas off? And also keeping in mind this time you're working for talk sports, so you're going to be busy as hell doing that as well. You pick your time and your place to go in and, and record. Um, I, all the drums got done in three days. Initially, I had three days booked at the start of the sessions. And I got all, what was it, 15 tracks done. Um, uh, and then, you know, I just booked a couple of days here and there during the course of 2012. You know, about eight or nine months, probably, sporadically going back in and adding bass parts or guitar parts, <laughs> vocals or backing vocals or mixing, whatever it was. But, you know, there was, a, there was a certain degree of discipline because, of course, you start with the drums and I'm not playing to anybody. There's, no, there's not anybody in the control room playing the guy guitar. So I'm playing the drum parts from memory, the arrangement. So, wow. so you, you start with that and you make sure that you've got the arrangement exactly right and the fills are in the right place, you know, and then you put the bass on top. And then, you know, it, you just build it gradually and gradually piecemeal um but you've got to have that discipline at first with the drum parts because as we mentioned earlier if the drums aren't right 
then everything else that sits on top of it isn't going to sound right either. I admire the fact that you have that patience because me, I, I know if I'd done like the drum tracks, were like, well, I need to do the guitar tracks now. I'm not waiting four weeks before I can get the studio again. I need to do it fucking now. <laughs> well, I've got a good ear. I, I discovered when I was a kid that I had something called perfect pitch, which is where, you know, you can play a note like, oh, that's an, you know, an E or that's an A or a G. So I've got that. It's like some people see colours. I can see notes or hear them, you know, and that was a big help to me as a songwriter and as an arranger and also trusting my instincts for what I thought might sound good. Because, you know, with a song like Soulmate, the first song you hear on Prove You Wrong, there's a twin lead guitar thing that's kind of one of the hooks, one of the motifs of the song. And I didn't have that in mind. I had just a single guitar line, but the producer said, that would sound really good if you put a harmony part on top of that. So straight away on the fly, thinking, oh, God, right, okay. So if that's in that key, what works with that? And you're under pressure. You've got to find something, pull something out of the bag that works. And when it does work, as I believe it did in that instance, it just makes you feel, you know, 10 feet tall that you've you've pulled that out. It sounds as good as it does. Do you, mean, do you have any time to just live? <laughs> to actually do anything other than, you know, working or music? This week's, this week's been fairly quiet. I mean, I am... At the moment, this this room is doubling up as a as a studio to record guitar parts for album number three, which is um, in the middle of being done. I would say it's not finished by any stretch. Amazing. Um, there's going to be another solo album at some point, if not this year, then early next. Um, but you know, people think I'm working seven days a week, and I'm not really. You know, it's yes, Saturdays I'm I'm at football matches or whatnot and you know sometimes planet rock shifts occur working for them which i do now um but no two weeks are ever the same that's probably the best way to describe it with my life some weeks are very quiet some weeks are mad busy well i mean the football season's finishing well it's finishing on monday isn't it i've got my last game for this domestic season on monday for the playoff final between morecambe and newport and then I've got a couple of weeks off and then the Euros kicks in and I'll be doing some commentaries for talk sport for the Euros. Oh, amazing. Excited? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I won't be doing England games. I'll be doing, um, I think I'm doing the three German group stage games against France, Portugal and Hungary. Oh, what a group that is. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> a group of death, uh, as they call it. So that's, that's going to be my responsibility once we get to kind of mid-June. Um, I- just so excited. 23 years it's been since Scotland have last been in a world tournament. And I'm just, I know it's not world, I know it's the Euros, but still, just, we're still there. I don't care if we get destroyed every game. We're just going to be there. I'm just going to get drunk. <laughs> it's just going to be a wonderful experience. If we get any further in the group stages, bonus. Absolute bonus. Absolutely. Just embrace it for what it is uh, and and see what happens. You know, you won't be the only, only country thinking like that. There'll be countries like Finland that I don't think I've ever played at a major tournament finals before. For it, it's all brand new for them, you know, and it's all brand new for your generation of Scotland fans because France 98 was the last one. So, you know, yep. it's all brand new for you too. But, yeah, right. I remember we took Brazil to the limit. I think we were 1-0 up with like five minutes to go. 
if I'm thinking, well, the, the Brazil game I'm thinking of was 1982 when you had the audacity to score a 30-yarder in the 10th minute and they ended up backing you 4-1 because you, <laughs> you kicked the hornet's nest of Brazilian football far too early in that game. <laughs> I'll never forget that James McFadden goal against France. Oh, oh. Yeah. Well, McFadden was a, a, a bit of a Birmingham City star as well. He was a very important player for, for my team. So when he scored that goal against the French, there was a, you know, Birmingham fans had that sort of, you know, feeling of kinship. Yeah, it, was, it was beautiful. Sorry to completely go off track. I'm just looking forward to the Euros. Aren't we all? So you mentioned briefly then about uh, Planet Rock. What is it you're doing at Planet Rock? I'm just the cover guy. Um, because Paul Anthony and Wyatt and Darren Reddick, they're the three main presenters on Planet Rock during the day from you know six in the morning till seven in the evening. And sometimes they need time off. And I was approached in 2015, I think, to cover for those guys, if ever they took time off. Um, and that's what I do. So next week, I'll be, from Tuesday to Friday, I'm looking after Darren's afternoon show between two and seven. Um, so another string to the bow, I guess you could call it. <laughs> another little aspect of my, um, my strange little life. As a music lover, though, that must be ace to do with like a channel like Planet Rock because you just get to listen to your favourite songs all day. Exactly that. It is exactly that. Uh, and what it also does, as I've mentioned before in other interviews I've done, is how it it opens your mind to other bands that you you know you you haven't really listened to enough of other mm. artists uh, who are on the playlist and you get to appreciate just how good they are uh, when you listen to a band like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And you hear like "Here Comes My Girl" and "The Waiting" uh, and and songs like that. I think, God, this guy was brilliant. You know, of course, sadly lost to us a couple of years back now. Tom Petty. You know, it wasn't just about the stuff he did with Jeff Lynne, like "Running Down a Dream" or "I Won't Back Down." You, the, the, the damn the torpedo stuff and the early Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers is just brilliant. What a band as well. You know, Mike Campbell, Ben Montench, Stan Lynch, great band, the Heartbreakers. So that's an education for me that, you know, every day is a school day, as Wyatt often says. And it is a school day because you'll, whether it's an old artist, an old song that you haven't heard for years and it suddenly registers with you, or it's a new band that we're playing that sounds wicked, like those damn crows who I'm really into at the moment, who are a brilliant band from Bridgend. Mm. You still get that frisson of excitement, whether it's an old band or a new band that you're playing. This might sound like a really weird question, but for bands of old, does it ever, not, I say frustrate might be the wrong word, but like knowing they'll never release anything ever again. Is that not, is that, because I'm into more, I'm into the more modern stuff now. Like I like, I can appreciate some older bands and stuff like Guns, like I brought up on Guns N' Roses and that sort of thing. But I'm just thinking like, because Jamie's quite into like classical rock and stuff as well. Like knowing that bands will never bring out another record again. Does that ever like, you know, oh, I wish that you could just do one more. Well, the law of diminishing returns quite often kicks in with, you know, bands that keep, keep releasing albums. There's a few exceptions to that. I can think of a band like Cheap Trick who still release new music regularly. And I still love what they do. Um, saw them supporting Def Leppard a couple of years ago in the oh. And 
they were I just love Cheap Trick great melodic rock you just can't knock it you know um, I mean Kiss have done some relatively recent new albums in the last decade or so they had Sonic Boom that came out in 2009 I think and then Monster yeah. a few later and there's, there's one or two good songs on each but not as consistent as an album I would love, like, say, Creatures of the Night or Alive, the, the album we started talking about right at the top of the show. Um, it, it depends on the band, really, to be honest with you, Tom. It's just dependent on how hungry that band is, mm. you know, or whether they just feel like they're going through the motions just think, for their album. I can't remember if it was Paul or Gene I was listening to an interview and they went, the reason we don't want to record new albums is because we did Sonic Boom, we did Monster, not a single fan asks for those songs live, and that is what Kiss is. We're a live band, so what's the point? Yeah, there's an element of that. There's the element of, you know, at, at what point does a song like say, yeah, that's the last track on Sonic Boom, at what point do Kiss fans consider that a classic Kiss song? Because it is a great song, as I mentioned. It's, it's a great of- song, yeah, they played it on the last tour. <laughs> Sonic Boom, along with Modern Day Delilah and um, maybe one other. But when does Say Yeah pass over from being a song on Sonic Boom to a classic Kiss song like Detroit Rock City or God of Thunder? It's a really tricky thing for the band to know. And they did put Say Yeah into the last set list when they played it um, in Birmingham um, in 2019. So it came back into the set list nine, ten years after it had been originally on an album. And it went down really well. Mm. But I don't think it went down well enough for a, a Paul or a Gene to think, well, we need to make more. They don't, and they say nobody buys it. That they're they're firmly in this camp of you know, the streaming services have effectively made it not worthwhile releasing new music because it's just not profitable because everybody wants it for free. And there's a big part of it with a lot of the older bands as well is because, like you say. It's not what they used to, the modern music market. So what's no, the, the industry's completely changed, you know, from the 70s and 80s when it was record companies giving artists advance money to go and record albums and then that money recouped through album sales and touring and merchandise sales. All bands have got now is merchandise. And even that is being cut by venues who want a, they want a, a percentage of merchandise sold under their roof. So every avenue available to young bands to make money is gradually being cut off. And when Spotify pay 0.0001p per stream of a song, what good's that to an artist? What's that? What, what encouragement is that supposed to be for an artist? So Adele can get hundreds of thousands of streams a day as she does, and can barely go shopping at Sainsbury's with what she earns from it. <laughs> that's crazy. <coughs> so, and that's Adele, who's got a massive following and people are streaming her songs all the time. So if you're a band like, I mentioned those damn crows earlier, you know, they've got to try and generate as much income as they can from, you know, touring and getting out there and trying to sell those damn crows hoodies and beanie hats and things like that because 
people will buy the albums and that's great. And, it, you know, you need that body of work out there that people can hear. But it's not generating anything like the profit for band that CD sales used to or album sales used to. Completely different world now. So before we start wrapping up, I, I wanted to mention like what you're doing now. So obviously you said that TalkSport and you can find you on Planet Rock. Um, but I did see you also do an awesome looking band called Lever and Lace. Ah, yes. Now this is um, something that um, Gary, my former bandmate in Dresdekill, the bass player, and I um, formed back in, let me get this right, 2014, we came up with the original idea. Gary and I, that we wanted to put together um, a classic rock anthems theatre show. So you'd hear classic rock anthems and power ballads. Again, you know, a theatre show, two guitarists, two singers, bass, keyboards, drums, playing Toto, Foreigner, Journey, Survivor, REO Speedwagon, Def Leppard, Whitesnake, Bon Jovi, Van Halen, Aerosmith songs. Again, 100% accurate as they were meant to be heard and just give people that time capsule to go back to of the, those hedonistic days of the 70s and 80s and put that as a theatre show with a proper theatre production. And uh, I love it. I absolutely love it. And of course, we've not been able to go out there and play um, because of lockdown and everything, but champing at the bit to get back out there as soon as we possibly can. And so, I was hoping it comes soon. It's a great night. Again, it's, it's all about... You know, we've got a male singer and a female singer, and they just divvy up, you know, songs between them. Um, and we don't have anything on tape. We don't have any sort of, you know, backing tracks or anything to augment what we do. It's it's, all, it's us, warts and all. Um, and we all take great pride in its all of us. Great pride in its accuracy. So I saw a video on the um, on the website where you're wearing an amazing purple vest, may I add. And yes. waistcoat, sorry. And it is it sounds brilliant. The the female singer has got an amazing set of pipes on it. It's really good. That is Tanif. Tanif is our secret weapon. Um because we'd rehearsed as a as a band without singers for about a year, just as the two guitars, bass drums, keyboards, just to get the musical side of things right before we even considered auditioning any singers. And um we had four or five male singers and four or five female singers come in to audition for us at the time. And one of the audition pieces for all the ladies was Alone by Hart. Mm. And there's a, there's a particular scream that Anne Wilson does midway during that song. And all the singers did it and did it really well. All the singers that auditioned for us, no question they were all great. But Tanith was just that extra 5% hairs on the back of the neck, standing on end, brilliant. Um, and I knew from, we were all casting sort of furtive glances amongst each other while she was thinking, yep, she's the one. Um, Amazing. So, yeah, she's, um, she's, she's a brilliant, brilliant singer and a lovely person to have around. You know, we're all nice, nice people in leather and lace. <laughs> we all get on <laughs> with each other and enjoy each other's company. Yeah, I really hope I could check that show out when you're uh, back up and on the road because well, it does look really good. We will be back. We're, 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 um, we're getting together very soon for, a, for our first rehearsal now that we can do it uh, in a COVID-secure environment. And we're very much looking forward to getting back in the same room as each other once again. And yeah, soon we'll be back on a lighted stage somewhere. 
Incredible. Right, Tom, before we start wrapping up, have you got any more questions? Yeah, um, I noticed <coughs> that you were a presenter for Gems TV doing like some sort of shopping channel oh, yeah. sort of-esque. Yeah, I'm just intrigued to what made you dip your toe into that water. That was um, circumstances. When, when I left BRNB um, in 2002 as a drive time presenter, yeah, was not what I wanted to happen, but BRNB's music policy changed and they wanted more songs and less talking. So a show like mine was always going to suffer for that. Yeah. But I was still working for them as a football commentator, so I still had work at the weekends, but I needed something to do in the week. As it turned out, a big fan of the Barmy Brummies, Steve Bennett, had just set up um, a company in Redditch, just outside Birmingham, doing infomercials. And he was trying to set up a, a fledgling shopping channel, which started life as, it was known as Factory Outlet TV at first. Mm-hmm. And in 2002, I did a, a screen test for them, got in. So you started doing pre-recorded infomercials on the strangest stuff, karaoke machines, <laughs> uh, pots and pans, you know, things like that. And it developed into a falling auction channel called Snatch It. Uh, and then Snatch It, which became popular and actually in many ways saved the company, the falling auction idea. It then morphed into Gems TV in about 2004 when Steve met a gem dealer from Thailand and he completely bought into the idea of us all being gem experts. So we all had a training course. We all went off to Thailand, all of us presenters to learn about, you know, where gems come from. We went to a sapphire mine just outside of um, uh, Bangkok. (laughs) And I became an expert on um, gemstones and jewelry. Um, And I stayed there probably for another two years doing that, doing shifts during the week. So I'd be doing um, a football match on a Saturday, Art FM show on a Sunday. I'd then have Monday off. That was my day off, you know, in the week. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, typically during the day, I'd be doing shifts at Gems TV, selling pens, necklaces and rings and (laughs) and sapphires, rubies, emeralds. Amethysts, Tanzanite, you name it. That's incredible. We're doing all the hand motions ready to be like a hand model at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it became a bit Bridget Jones, you know. Uh, <laughs> at any time, really occasion. Uh, we did try and have some fun with it. We were allowed a bit of leeway to be ourselves, you know, and not be stiff up a lip and, you know, with a rod up our arse. You know, we, we were allowed to have a bit of fun with it, which we did. And, um, the, the viewers loved it and it came across to the viewers how much we loved it and they loved it too. And it, James TV is still going strong now in 2021. You'll find it on your, in the 600 somewhere on your Sky EPG. That's and it's amazing. Still a lot of the same presenters who I was working with then back in the day are still there and they're still lovely people. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love, I that. love that. Ian Danter, musician, radio presenter. Gem expert. <laughs> yeah, don't put it on the business card. Right. So, Ian, before we let you go, we like to play a little game with our guests. If that's okay with you, we literally we call it a quick fire round, and we just fire five questions at you, and you answer them as quick as you can. Okay. So, first one: your first ever concert. Uh, 
1983 Lick It Up tour at Stafford Bingley Cowshed. Fuck, I'm so jealous right now. Um, supported by Helix and Heavy Petting. And Heavy Petting were the first band on. And after their first song, it was We Want Kiss. We want kiss. <laughs> they had the, the stage set with a tank. Mm. Uh, Eric, Eric Carr's drums were set up on the turret and gun of a tank. Vinnie Vincent was in the band. It was the first tour without makeup. But they just released it up. What I mean, what a first gig. I'm uh, so jealous right now. <laughs> and my mum and dad, me and my two mates, Andy and Tim, they drove us up to Stafford from Solihull to this gig. And mum and dad had booked a table for a meal in somewhere nearby, Utoxeter or something. And mum had said, meet us back here. We'll, we'll put the car back here when we pick you up. So, of course, they, they get back and find a, the spot where they said they'd meet us. And they can hear the last strains of Black Diamond or something coming out of this Stafford Bingley cow shed. And all of a sudden the doors open and this sea of denim and leather starts. <laughs> and she was going, where's my son? You know, because uh, what she could see was these hordes of thousands of, it was like 7,000 people I think would have been in that place that night. Um, but yeah, that was uh, oh. October 83, kissed. Lick it up to a thank you very much. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> um, what's your favourite pizza topping? Uh, Mighty Meeting. Oh, Good answer. Great shout. The best impression you can do, in your opinion? Trevor Francis, the former Birmingham City player and manager, is the one I get thrown at me as being the one that others think are most is most accurate, so I'll probably go with that. And Trevor sort of sounds a bit like this. He comes from Plymouth. And he's got a black where it sounds like he's got a slightly blocked up nose. Um, so, yeah, but he doesn't get me to work. Um, you know, not much more affected a Gary Neville or a Jamie Carragher, but, um, you know. Oh, I love that. I knew the name, but I couldn't picture it. And as soon as you did that voice, I was like, yep, I know exactly who it is now. <laughs> he's, he's the one that people to me most I think oh. who would play you in the movie of your life James May I could see it I could see it I'm not going to lie <laughs> that's, that's excellent answer <laughs> and last but not least a piece of advice you would give to your younger self just believe in yourself for goodness sake um have a bit of faith in your own abilities. Um, uh, yeah, that's probably what I would have said to myself. I like that. Don't, don't give up. Beautiful. Beautiful. I don't think, and I don't think I ever truly gave up on anything. Some things ran their course, but um, yeah, I'd have, I'd have said to myself, just keep going. You never know. Amazing. Ian, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for doing this for us. An absolute pleasure. Nice to speak to you guys. Uh, yeah, before thanks. you go, is there any plugs, any websites, social medias, etc.? Well, people can go to my website and, and learn more about me. There's uh, iandanta.co.uk and you can purchase my two albums on that website as well for um, Prove You Wrong and Second Time Around. Um, yeah, if you want to hear those podcasts, there's like 25, 26 episodes all half an hour in length that you'll find on uh, Apple Podcasts or Audio Boom or wherever you get your podcasts. 
It's called Ian Dancer's Barmy Old Podcast. Um, and, you know, they're free to listen to and whatnot. Um, hopefully you'll enjoy those. And, uh, yeah, look out for Leather and Lace uh, coming to a theatre near you uh, as 2021 becomes 2022. Classic rock anthems and power ballad show. I'll be all over that. I'll be all over that. Yeah. So, again, Ian, thank you so much. It's been amazing. Thanks, guys. All the best. Absolute, absolute pleasure. You take care and enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks, chaps. Take care, Cheers. sir. Just what an amazing dude. So lovely fun. Guy. So lovely, fun. lovely guy. Like I, when you start to about Kiss, I was just like, cool, I'll just chill out for a little bit. Yeah. Just look around and say, oh, the walls are very magnolia here, boys. <laughs> <laughs> I may have been in my element. It's all right, you're entitled to it. I, we, I get a lot of elemental moments, so it's about time you had some yourself. I loved it, though, because there was times where me and Ian were talking about Kiss, and you were just like, what the fuck's going on? And then there's times where you and Ian are talking about football, and I'm just like, what the fuck's <laughs> yeah. going on? <laughs> Of course, great. We, talk, we talked about Scotland and the Euros, like we said at the start of the show, and uh, obviously they're out now, so it's just a bit bittersweet, but at least I got to talk to a football commentator. He commentated on the uh, Spain Slovakia game today, uh, yeah. on, which is cool. Yeah, so you can catch Ian on Talk Sport Radio uh, commentating on the Euros right now. And uh, after doing this interview, I went back and I've been checking out his uh, Barmyol podcast. Fucking hilarious. I've laughed so much listening to it. It's just all like clips from when he was working on BRB and Heart and stuff like that. Oh, so funny. Really definitely worth checking out. It's where he does someone that um in the House of Commons is an MP for, for uh, Dudley, and it's so funny. <laughs> Mr. Spaker. <laughs> definitely gotta check it out. Definitely check that bad boy out. Anyway, ladies and gents, it's my turn for audience participation. This week I said, aren't those spontaneous moments and decisions you make in life the best? Or are they? My question this week is, what's the most spontaneous thing you've ever done and how did it go? Mr. Stevens. Uh, booking my trip, solo trip to America, I think was one of the most spontaneous things I've ever done. Yeah, I was, like, you, yeah. I was like, I just really want to go. And I thought, I'm working two jobs. I work at Spoons at night and I work at, um, sorry, I work at Asda at night and Spoons in the day. And Spoons paid me every week. And Asda was like, massive bulk at the end of the end of the month of the time. I was like, do you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go to America on my own for 10 days. I'm going to fly to Denver, Colorado. WWE happened to just fucking be in Denver at the time I went. So I was like, six, I booked that. Went to Pittsburgh as well to watch the Steelers play in the same 10 days. It was a very expensive fucking 10 days, but my God, it was the greatest time of my life. Just, yeah, I remember talking to you. It was amazing. Dude, just walking through Denver, Colorado at 37 fucking degrees down, down, downtown. It was just like, this is amazing. Just the atmosphere. Like, I met loads of awesome people. People paid my bar tabs for me. Um, like, it was just amazing. And I had a guy talking about baseball. I didn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, flying out to America for 10 days on my own with a back, with a, literally just a backpack was phenomenal. That's amazing. I genuinely, I, I'm, I'm going to sound so boring. I could not think of anything spontaneous that I've done that's memorable. Move back Someone to Birmingham. In the end, that wasn't really that spontaneous. I sort of planned it. It's my, this is my problem. I don't do spontaneity. I plan things. I make sure every, all the dots are ticked and everything. I don't. I like to make sure everything's going to go smoothly and prepared. Did you say you make sure all the dots are ticked? Yes, I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> Dotted the I's across the T's is what you're trying to say, isn't it? Yeah, there's no ticks in there. 
Yeah. But you know what? Tick my dots. If you tick my dots, who's tick my who's tick my dots? <laughs> Don't they know it's my job to tick the dots? How dare you? <laughs> you bastards. <laughs> <laughs> who's been ticking my dots? Anyway. <laughs> I'm such an idiot. Jamie, Jamie, anyway, ha- yeah. have you have you have you ticked your dots? Uh not yet. I better ah. do that as soon as we get please, off please here, do. Right? No, yes, yes please do, yes, yes. Anyway. <laughs> Like Cortina Womack says, I just decided one day to go to Brussels for the weekend. I already lived in Germany, so it was just a couple of hours on a train, but still, it worked out pretty great. Fucking amazing. Love it. Melissa, fuck me, it's one of them surnames I can't pronounce. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Melissa Ruad, we'll go with that. I've done a lot, and probably half of them turned out better left undone. My most memorable one was getting married. How did it turn out? Well, I'm still married 16 years later. So. Oh, I think that one turned out all right. Yeah, that's all right. That's amazing. <laughs> Love it. Emma Wharton says, either skinny dipping after running around the complex completely naked or waking the kids up at 3.30am, taking them to Digbeth Coach Station in Birmingham and then deciding to go to London for breakfast. What the fuck? <laughs> As you do. I, these stories are awesome. Keep going. Birmingham Weatherspoon's breakfast is shit. We're going to London, kids. <laughs> Where is Slough? I need to go to Slough. <laughs> Slough Weatherspoons. I hear good things. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm adamant it's a Weatherspoons breakfast. It could have been anywhere. Uh, Moose Cooper says, after working a gig at college, four of us ended up in the back of a van heading to an illegal rave. We spent five hours walking to the closest village to get a lift. Whereas if we'd walked the other way, it would have taken about half an hour. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> Wait, hold on. It walked five hours to walk one way. So what? You went the other, so surely it'd be in the opposite direction. So he must have gone round five hours yeah. instead of to go and if he turned left for say, it would have been there in half an hour. That's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Moose, what are you like? Alex Whiteley says he won a male pageant when on holiday in Morocco. Really? But there's no details as to what you have to do in this male pageant, and I'm intrigued. Okay. But we've all seen him in drag, so I'm going to go with that one. Yes, that's clear what it is. That's clear what it is. Definitely got to be that. I just so random to be in a pageant in Morocco. I know, right? Fair enough. Carry on. I imagine it's one of those like holiday resorts. It's like, hey, let's bring out all the men. Because that's what people sound like in Morocco, I've decided. It sure was like an auction. (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) That's what it was. Kaz was just trying to flog him off. Yeah, yeah. And last but not least, we've got Mr. Ryan Williams. What story of spontaneity do I tell you? I mean, do I tell you about the time I skipped school to see Metallica perform? Good man. Nice. The time I skinny dipped with a gal I had just met and we somehow lost our clothes? Mm, I bet you did. I bet you did. I bet you did, Ryan. (laughs) Fucking hell. That'd be the worst thing ever to walk back home with no clothes on. Or the time I snuck into a movie, which was a sneak peek of Wreck-It Ralph. (laughs) Fair enough. <laughs> but probably the one I'll tell you about is when my buddy and I decided to road trip down to San Diego, only to have the car break down when we were about 40 minutes away. No. So we were stuck in a city I never heard of that apparently is a little more affluent than I'm used to. I mean, the only hotel was an embassy suite. So we decided to still have fun and we did the LSD we brought and decided to walk a little bit. Why not? I don't remember all the details, but apparently I threw a bunch of light bulbs at a church yelling, I am the Sith God and everyone will bow to me. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to a redhead, turned out to be a rosebush. <laughs> I don't know how I ended up back at the hotel, but I did. 
and I was in an elevator full of women were hoping for a booty call. I proceeded to give them all my digits, which surprisingly, no one called me. <laughs> when we checked out, we ended up getting triple charged for our room service, which because of which we caused our rent to be overdrawn. So I ended up getting a refund and a credit for getting any room in California comp for free at a later date of my choice. Oh, nice. So it worked out at the end. Yeah. Fucking hell. Brian, you officially won that and more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued by the skinny dipping conversation. I want to know. I know, I'm me. I want to know how he lost all his clothes. Yeah, apparently. Do you reckon it was him, really? Like, she got him first, he just launched her clothes and went, oh, no, we're naked. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. no. Stay close to me for warmth. <laughs> for warmth. <laughs> if you enjoy Jamie's little participation challenges, my journal, Callum's treachings, the interviews, and all of you, Sir Chronicles, you can check out the previous 34 editions that we have graciously betrothed upon you. Uh, on Spotify and on our YouTube channel at the USUC Podcasting Network. There was also USUC Superior Bar Fight where me and Jamie had loads of fights, including everything else bar the treachings. You can also uh, go and check out USUC's What's the Difference with Al and Tom as they interview loads of incredible people with incredible roles and jobs and careers and lives. And they also have the Later Lounge afterwards, also available on our YouTube at the USUC Podcasting Network. Click that subscribe button. Um, you can also find uh, USUC's The Weekly Bazaar on there, which is now ended for the time being, which is all, all in its entirety. Our interviews are on there. Their interviews are on there. Um, and all of USUC Live are on there. USUC Live every Wednesday, 9pm, uh, via our Facebook and our YouTube channel, at USUC Podcasting Network. Click that subscribe button. Um, there is also a website at www.usucnetwork.com. You can find out all about us, our shows, the podcast, the, sh- the episodes are on there, the stores on there. We can buy loads of merch. You can also follow us on Facebook at USUC or at the USUC fan page. And there's also the USUC Chronicles podcast page itself or the USUC What's the Difference podcast page itself if you want to follow us individually. You can also follow us on the Twitter at USUC Chronicles or at USUC Network. You can also follow us on the Insta at USUC Network. And you can also follow us on TikTok at USUC Network. Ah, oh, USUC Chronicles, what a pleasure. Download us, review us, tell all your friends about us, share us. Allow us into your ears. And most importantly, when listening, make sure you're staring at us through a webcam. It gets very raunchy. Do we know that the webcam's on us? Yes. Mm, that's okay. Then. No one wants to see me in my private life. I definitely want to see you in your private life. That's exactly <laughs> why we always do it around here now, boys. So we're recording the show, but secretly I'm just taking notes. Becky only walks past once. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> Here's my dick. <laughs> Shit, just walk past fuck. Anyway, so yeah, us, welcome to the Chronicles. Uh, <laughs> Let's put it this way. Everybody's got a reason to live. <laughs> <laughs> but Jamie, what an episode. What a show again. Ian, thank you so much again for being such an absolute hero. Indeed. Ian, you absolute hero. Please, everyone, go check out Ian's Barmy Old Podcast. Listen to his music on Spotify. Check him out on Talk Sport and Planet Rock Radio. Just go support the man because he's an absolute hero. He is a true legend. I mean, thank you for taking the time out to talk to us here. It was a genuine pleasure. Jamie, we're not here next week. We're not. We're going to have a week off, ladies and gents. We're going to recharge those batteries, as they say. And we should be back the week later with another wonderful guest. Exactly. A very stellar, stellar episode. Guys, have a wonderful week next week. We're so sorry we won't be here. We will see you in two weeks' time. So as for this week, we will see you in two weeks. Goodbye, everybody. Bye! Bye. USA Chronicles, part of the USA Podcasting Network.